and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we're releasing a special episode for the second year in a row. We are releasing all of our favorite podcasting moments from the year 2023. We did this for the first time last year in 2022, and even though it's a ton of work (laughs) and a lot of going back over content, it was really fun to put together. I really enjoyed myself, and we got really good response, so we're doing that again this year. Uh, Before we get into that, I did want to share a few kind of fun stats about the podcast. I'm super proud of how um, this has gone so far. And in 2023, we have released 174 different episodes for a total of 12,153 minutes. And that is before this episode gets launched, which as you know, will be kind of a lengthy one as well. Um, We generated, let's see, almost 200,000 downloads. So it's at 195.5 thousand downloads for the year of 2023, which means by the time this one come out, we should be over 200,000 downloads for the year. That's crazy. In 127 countries. Um, that puts us up somewhere in the top 10% of all podcasts, which is pretty cool. Um, we had, let's see, top three countries were United States, Australia, and Canada. So thank you for those countries. The top cities that we had for listeners was Melbourne, Australia, which is great. Chicago, Sydney, Australia, New York and Perth, Australia. So lots of Australian cities. That's um, that's pretty cool. And by the time this episode drops, this will be episode 569. So we started in October of 2020, pretty quickly slipped into a cadence of doing three days a week with bonus episodes on the weekend. And so we've been able to compile quite a bit here. Um, really just have to say, like, if there's something you want to create, like a podcast or whatever, it just really just takes consistency. This is not something we were very good at when we started, but we just tried to be as consistent as possible possible and always release our episodes on the same days and, and just try to ask a ton of awesome people out there to appear on our show. And we're so grateful for all of our guests, not only this year, but when we first got started to be able to get this message out. Um, like I said, contributing to these episodes, putting these together, compiling them is actually really a challenge. They take a while to do. Um, I have to find you know the, the, the best episodes, the best clips, not even the best ones. It's so hard to determine which ones are the best ones um, and which ones will fit the narrative of what we want to communicate here. Um, I have to go back. I've got to re-edit them. I've got to try to shorten them as much as possible, which again, I suck at, um, and then try to create bumpers in between if I need to add context or just introduce the next guest who's going to be speaking. So it is quite a bit of work, but I think they come out pretty well. And like I said, we've had really good response to that. Last year, um, in 2022, we kind of noticed the theme that our top downloaded and top commented, um, you know, videos and audio, not only on this podcast in the audio format, but also on YouTube, were about nutrition. And that was certainly the case again this year with an even greater emphasis on anything that we released that was about carnivore, low carbohydrate in, in general, but very specifically carnivore. We always do a lot of different carnivore experts on the show. But this year, more than any other, was was the topic that really generated the most interest. And it was something that I noticed this year as well, going to different health conferences, especially at KetoCon, I have to say, which was very much a consumer kind of driven health conference. There was lots of speakers that talked about anything keto and low carbohydrate, but what really to me got a lot of the attention was anything around carnivore, carnivore foods, carnivore speakers, the topic about carnivore. And we live in a really interesting time. A carnivore diet recently has far surpassed um, searches on Google um, as far as people searching carnivore diets versus vegan diets. Um, we just had Dr. Sean Baker um, up here on Joe Rogan for the second time. The first time I heard him on Joe Rogan was the first time I had ever heard about carnivore. That was several years ago, and it was so absurd to me that I ended up turning off that episode and never went back to listen to it until um, earlier sometime this year. 
and and you know people are finding out about this people are talking about it and while the food industry and the medical industry and, and the pharmaceutical industry just seems to be doubling down on really terrible advice that is continuing to not work for people there is a bigger and bigger cohort of people who have suffered enough and are looking for alternate ways to help with their health and the carnivore diet does seem to be getting very popular which is really great to see my experience with the carnivore diet over the last almost five years um, I started in April of 2019 personally eating a carnivore diet um, has been absolutely wonderful it definitely has really improved my health and my mental health. My energy is much better now. I turn 40 on the 13th of January in, in, in 2024, and I don't feel like I've aged at all. In fact, I feel much better than I did 10 years ago when I turned 30. Um, it's been quite amazing. And to get certified on Dr. Baker's website, the Rivero website, to be able to help other people was a really wonderful experience as well. It was the first like pr productive thing I did during the pandemic when everything was closed down and we were placed on unemployment. I got certified with his company so I could help people all over the world. That coaching has since closed down and closed down earlier this year in June, 2023, but I'm still able to coach people with that certification all over the world for people that want to try meat-based diets. And so that's really what this episode is going to focus on today. It is going to focus specifically on carnivore, carnivore diets. I've included uh, people that have commentary on it, what it is, what it's not, um, lots of different tips and tricks. Uh, we have a few really great stories in here. Um, again, trying to filter down to the best ones is just such a challenge. We've had so many amazing guests this year, um, and so it was really, really difficult to chop this down to make it be um, somewhat of a not so long episode, which again, not going to be successful there. But hopefully this is a comprehensive guide for you for World Carnivore Month, which is January um, every single year. And that is starting a few days after this podcast episode will release. So hopefully it's helpful for you. I did want to just say um, the way I think about a carnivore diet, I mentioned several times on the show, is that I consider the natural definition of a carnivore in nature to be a, an animal that consumes at least 75% of their calories from animals and animal products. So I don't necessarily think that everybody has to be on the carnivore diet, especially in a very strict way. Um, hopefully that comes through in this episode. I do think most people could be... Um, improving their health by moving more towards animal-based nutrition and protein in particular. Um, and so I think it can help a lot of people. I do actually think that everybody should give it a good try and be a little bit more strict. And I think January um, in World Carnivore Month is a good opportunity to do that. You've got lots of people all over the world who are doing it. There's many places where you can find support. You can always reach out to us. We always offer complimentary 30-minute sessions where we can help you discuss things and sort things out. But we do consider it a vast majority of your calories coming from um, animal products and not plants. Some plants are more problematic than others, and you can kind of test out which ones you do okay with and which ones you should just eliminate. Um, I have not had any desire really to bring back any vegetables in my diet. Um, sometimes seasonal fruits sound okay to me. Um, I've really lost the taste for sweet things and sugary things, so those are not a part of my diet at all anymore. Um, I... In particular, I don't really do this super, super strict in the sense that I will spice up my meat. I will use condiments on my meat. I will eat eggs quite a bit. I do include some dairy, although not a lot. Um, again, everybody has kind of a different reaction to some of those things. And so um, initially, people can include those in their diet. Again, I love it when people are a little bit more strict for a good 30 days, um, 60 days maybe, 
and then slowly bring these foods back in to see whether they affect them or not. I think the best food to be eating on any carnivore diet is red meat in particular. I think beef is wonderful. I don't get too worked up about the quality of the beef, whether it, whether it's grass-fed, grass-finished, or whether it's conventional that you get from the store. I think they are very, very comparable in quality. Um, and so, yeah, I think, again, it's a great time to check it out. Try for yourself if you've been curious. Um, if you have questions, don't hesitate to reach out. We can definitely get you in the right direction. And again, this is just a sampler of several different episodes that we've done about um, the carnivore diet. We've had so many good ones that didn't make it on here. So we did episodes with Dr. Chris Black, who is a chiropractor. We did episodes with Dr. Chris Kenobi and Suzanne Alexander, who actually traveled to different places in the world to see how they were eating on very natural diets um, in the South Pacific in particular. That was a wonderful story. We heard earlier in the year from Travers Enertson, who is a veterinarian actually, and was helping to reverse type 2 diabetes in cats by getting them on carnivore diets, which is their natural diet. Uh, Bill Schindler, um, you know, we had Sally Norton again. We've had Monique Attinger, just so many great people. Dom Diagostino was such a joy to catch up with him. And his was a little bit more in, in the keto space. And so we left that one out of this one, out of this episode. But there's lots of different resources out there. Um, and since we've done so many episodes, if you do have a particular question about a topic and want more specific um episode that talks about that, just reach out to me, email us, um, at train T R A I N at my And just feel free to reach out anytime. If you've got questions or need recommendations, I can go back through all the transcripts and I can remember better some of the episodes that we have recorded in the past. And I can send you those as well. Um, you can also check out our YouTube channel where we post all of this content. I also chop these down into smaller segments. So I might take a 10 to 15 minute segment of an interview and post those. So we have a video to post every single day. Um, I do want to give a shout out to one other episode. It's, it, it's somewhat related to nutrition and most people that are um, kind of in this space and looking around for different alternatives have found ketogenic, low carbohydrate and carnivore diets. I have to give a huge shout out to Andy at crowd health. We um, interviewed him on episode 542, I am now a member of crowd health and I pay to have not necessarily healthcare coverage, but to have crowd sourced, um, health kind of coverage where people in the community help each other pay their bills. Well, crowd health themselves help negotiate with the insurance companies, with hospitals, with doctors to lower bills and then operate on a cash pay system that is funded by members of the community. I signed up for the service after interviewing him a few months ago. I believe the episode dropped on November 1st. And I have to say, I am super happy to be a part of that community. I've already been able to help pitch in a hundred bucks towards a pregnancy and a hundred bucks towards some illness that somebody had in tech. And so, um, it's kind of cool when, when you are a young entrepreneur, uh, like we are, um, health insurance is extremely expensive. Uh, the cheapest plan that, that we could find on, you know, Obamacare this year was extremely expensive, had a huge deductible, which means it wouldn't even kick in to do anything until we hit a very high number for something that we don't really need unless we have some type of catastrophe. And so we've been without health insurance for the last, um, three and a half, four years, which has been, you know, a little stressful. And, um, it's cool that people are thinking about these issues and going different directions. And so far I've been very, very happy with crowd health. So I have to just give him a shout out and check out, um, episode 542 to learn more about that. But we're going to get started with our content that is about carnivore. We are going to start with episode 402 from earlier in the year, which was January 20th, where we interviewed Courtney Luna in an episode called Carnivore 101 with Courtney Luna, which is very aptly named. Let's go there now. 
Yeah, I thought it was insane to ditch veggies. Like, because even before I found his videos, I'm remembering now that my husband said that we have a, a, a couple friend and he's like, they're going to try carnivore, you know, to like lose weight. And I'm like, well, what's carnivore? He's like, not eating vegetables. I'm like, why would they do that just to lose weight? Like, why, how is that healthy? You know, we've been brainwashed to believe that vegetables are so good for us and, and that they're needed. And I had no clue how nutritious meat was. You think of red meat and you're like, oh, you get some protein, some fat, some iron. That was all I knew about it. So yeah, I thought it was insane until I started learning more and and he was explaining like why the plants are bad for us and, you know, learning about the defense chemicals and the oxalates and the lectins and all that. And then it started to make sense. Like, okay, we don't need the vegetables or fruit even to be healthy, that we can get all the nutrients our body needs just from meat, which is mind blowing to me. And it's still kind of crazy to think. And God, I wish more people would have an open mind to that instead of being so resistant, like absolutely not. There's no way. Like, just get curious. Yeah. It, Don't around. It is the vegetable thing. that I think that was the thing that made me resist it the most when I was getting started was like, if if vegetables are bad for you, I have been wrong, very wrong about nutrition with my clients, with my nutrition clients, with my personal training clients for, you know, at the time, a little over a decade. Like, I... <laughs> I would have been wrong about all of that. And so even hearing the message about carnivore, I really didn't deep dive into it as soon as I should have, because that was my, you know, kind of sacred cow, if you will, is that this is the best food. You need nine to 11 servings of vegetables every single day. And it just, you cringe to think back on those times that like you were eating all of these gross plants that had active fighting chemicals, like you said, that are fighting against our health, tearing up my gut and making my joints ache and all of these things that I was dealing with, it, it made everything worse. And so, yeah, it's such an interesting thought that that not that like plants are neutral but plants are actively bad for you and are causing harm um okay so again going back to that time your mind is kind of coming around to this idea what things did you do to get prepared to start your own carnivore diet um i think when once i decided to do it i just did it so i just jumped right in and started documenting it you know because i was already showing up on social media with all the other food stuff i've done and like the past couple years. So I just jumped right in. And so there wasn't much preparation. <laughs> I just started, I just started eating mainly beef, had lots of um, fatty meats, a lot of burger patties, steaks, like maybe half a cup to a cup of blueberries a day, or just maybe some other fruit, but very minimal and a little drizzle of maple syrup and butter on a burger, which, oh my gosh, if I were to have like a quote unquote cheat meal, I think that's probably what I would have. Cause that was, that was delicious. I actually missed that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. So it sounds like you already had the taste for red meat. What I find with a lot of people who are starting carnivore is they don't exactly start off with, with a taste or a craving for red meat. Now I find that that comes around very, very quickly in people where, you know, if you're eating a lot of chicken and fish, that's maybe what you're doing in the beginning, but over time, maybe a month, two months, three months, you are going to start craving that red meat for somebody who doesn't yet have the taste or palatability of the red meat. What would you say to that person? Where could they start? Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, I mean, it, it, you're right. You do come around. I mean, you see, there's so many vegan ex vegans in the carnivore community. And I think that's, a, you know, it's a, such a fascinating story that they have, but yeah, you'll get there. Just eat whatever meat you want to have. 
even if like, if you're coming from vegan too, I would maybe even suggest a little slow transition just so you're not like bombarding yourself. Maybe start out with some bone broth then add in some meat. But yeah, I mean, we're, we are all very heavy on the beef in the carnivore community, but there's nothing wrong with having other animals. Um, so yeah, if you want some chicken, maybe if you're having breast, like you could have it plain or whatever, but I would add fat to things if you're having lean cuts, but also not stress about it in the beginning. It will all balance out eventually. Yeah. Do you find that as you're helping people get started, do you find that one of the barriers to success is people that think they need to make it more complicated for themselves than they need to? Yeah. I think they're overthinking it and they're trying to be maybe a little like not too creative in the kitchen, but like they're used to making recipes. Or now they're worried, like, should I also be fasting or should I be tracking my macros? And it's like, just keep it simple. Like you can adjust all that stuff as you go. Like just in the beginning, have some bacon and eggs for breakfast, have some burger patties with cheese. If you like dairy for lunch and have a steak for dinner, like you don't need, you don't need to complicate it at all. And you can make changes down the road, but yeah, just start off. Like, don't be stressed out. There's so many things that you can tweak as you go on. I love that. That's great advice. Were there any recipes that you were following in the beginning that now you no longer need because it's just so simple. You just throw some burger patties in an air fryer, eat it with some bacon or butter and you're done. Like it's so easy, but were there any recipes in the beginning that you really enjoyed? Um, I mean, I did make a lot, but honestly I was making it for everybody else because I was already sharing my food. I wanted to give people still like a little bit of like creative stuff. Like, I don't think anybody would have wanted to see me eat burgers every day. Um, so I did do some stuff like, you know, meatballs that have like cheese and bacon in it or whatever, or I would make these cheese wraps, um, where you bake the cheese and use them as a wrap and roll them up with things in. So I don't really eat those anymore or like chaffles. I don't eat anymore. So yeah, I mean, I honestly, I did it for the gram. I did it for the people that like, that needed that. Like I, I technically didn't need those recipes. I was content with burger patties and steaks and I still am, but yeah, it's fun to throw something in once in a while. Like I love my carnivore ish coffee, ice cream or gnocchi with uh brown butter cream sauce. Like everything, I guess it like has a lot of dairy. I'm trying not to do dairy right now. <laughs> Well, no, that's great. And I think, again, that's really good, helpful advice for somebody that's just trying to get started. Um, I was asked this in a podcast interview that was just hosted on yesterday. And they asked me about the fat loss and the weight loss that comes along with carnivore diet. And I said, like, that's, that's fun. That is really fun. And it's sexy. And it's great. And it's what people want. But that's not the reason that people do carnivore. You can lose weight doing lots of different things. There's other reasons that people do carnivore. And so I'm curious, what were your results for what you were seeking, which was, again, to lose weight? Um, how did that go? And then what other things kind of surprised you? Yeah. So I'm down 35 pounds and still have 20. So that's great. I mean, the weight loss came easy. I did stall the last few months. And I think, cause I went overboard on the dairy. So we're pulling that back. Um, and yeah, like the benefits, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting those. And, you know, a lot of people, this is the ultimate elimination diet. You know, people aren't, going on this. I mean, some are just to lose weight. Like you said, like people are turning to this because they have some major health issues or they have like autoimmune disease. Like I have a friend who was covered head to toe in psoriasis, like insane. And it's completely cleared up. And, you know, like Michaela Peterson, she like healed her juvenile arthritis. So 
it's really like people looking to heal. This isn't a fad diet. Like people keep saying like, this isn't a diet, like diet to me, like that's not the right word. Like this is a lifestyle for people. Like this is how people are healing their bodies and improving, you know, their mental health. And yeah, it's just been, it's been life-changing for me. This next clip is taken from episode 425, titled Carnivore Diets and Resistance Training with Daniel Magyar. This was one of the best explanations I've ever heard about insulin resistance and the carnivore diet itself, and something that has really stuck with me, um, something that Courtney kind of alluded to as well, that if the first time you hear about a carnivore diet, it doesn't seem very strange and odd to you, then I kind of think you're a little bit strange because it is very, very different. I love how he made that point. Um, we contacted Daniel due to an interview that we did early in the year with Hal Cramner. We're going to get to him as well. And Daniel was actually the trainer for another person that we hosted on the site, which was Julie Sipes. We hosted her on episode 435 and her very inspirational weight loss story. So be sure to check those out. And here is a clip with Daniel. I do want to talk about protein and diets. When, when was the first time you heard about a carnivore diet? 2016, when Sean Baker started doing it. 2016. That's early, man. Yeah. So I, I saw it. I was watching it. it was, listen, carnivore diet should, should sound absolutely insane to you when you never heard about it. When you when you first hear about it, it should be like the most insane thing ever because you've been told your whole life something else. But also, then you start looking at your own life quality and you start realizing that, all right, well, I don't feel the best I ever felt. Like, yes, I'm exhausted. I sleep nine hours a day, 10 hours a day, and I'm still exhausted. I'm 35% body fat. I'm insulin resistant. My blood pressure's through the roof. I look bad, and I'm, I live life in hiding. I'm not out there pursuing things, but I'm hiding in shadows. Let's just give it a shot. Let's see if this carnivore diet is going to help me, because I probably tried every single diet in the world. I've done paleo. I've been vegan. I've done, I've done keto. I've done carb cycling. When I got to the point where I'm going to have everything with moderation, because that's normal, you can have a little bit of this and that, and you start convincing yourself that every new diet plan or food plan you find uh, is pretty much the right decision for you because you do not have knowledge. Now, if you do have knowledge about human organism, you are not lost. You're not running away from one meal plan to the other one, to the other one, to the other one, because you understand how Body works, what are two essential macronutrients, which is protein and fat, carbohydrates are not essential. Thank you. Absolutely not necessary for a human organism. Body produces sugar on its own. The consumption of carbohydrate is not necessary. The body does have ability to process carbohydrates, yes, but now we're running into more issues as the population is consuming more and more carbohydrates because the thing number one that is destroying our, our population is insulin resistance. That's where it all starts with the insulin resistance. Almost everybody is insulin resistant to a certain degree in the United States and people who I talk to. Now, what is insulin resistance? It's when the cells start rejecting the energy. So what's gonna happen with all that energy that's insulin carrying when the cell actually rejects it because you've been beating up the receptor on that cell for so long? Well, the insulin has to deliver that energy somewhere. And it stores that energy right in your fat cells around the waistline. And your waistline is just massive, big, and fat. And you see people with all these big stomachs, you know, that is pretty much a standard since 2023 in the United States, um, thinking that it's normal, thinking that it's okay. And that's actually a metabolic disease. Like, um, we have to understand the importance of 
being insulin sensitive. Like insulin sensitivity is is the exact opposite from the insulin resistance. And insulin sensitivity pretty much keeps you away from the morbid obesity, which is then associated with many, many more risk factors towards the heart disease and other metabolic disease. So when we look at people these days, they're insulin resistant. They don't stop even the foods they're eating that are making them insulin resistant, which is a lot of seed oils and sugars and alcohol all combined in one portion. Average portion of a person might be burger, fries, and some Coke, uh, which is just a bunch of trans fat, seed oils, a sugar. And, um, you know, you get a tiny bit of protein um, that is pretty much just going to get lost in all the cons of that meal. Um, and people eat it, they turn insulin resistant, and body is in a state where it only takes very little energy for presence. That's pretty much insulin resistance. Body doesn't take much energy for present situation. It stores it for future. And now here's the, here's the reason why. Human organism didn't have sufficient amount of calories through the evolution. When we go back to Homo habilis, to Homo erectus, to Neanderthals, to Homo sapiens, our ancestors did not have a chance to have a sufficient amount of 4,000 calories every single day and just you know, have fun by the fire. Um, there were days when they didn't eat at all. There were days, days where they were feasting. And insulin resistance was pretty much created right before winter. So when the nature has produced enough fruit, in a certain part of the parts of the world only, also if you're in a part of the world where it's cold and it's freezing, you're not getting any fruit, which is pretty much protein and fat, 365. But where you find fruit, but remember, it's still competing with other organisms, and then you're competing with insects and mold and all that stuff that is going to pretty much take over the fruit as well. So you got to be very quick to find it. But when you find it in the, in the good amounts, your body turns insulin resistant. Bears deliver themselves type 2 diabetes before every winter. Yep. Just so they can store as much body fat as possible so they can get through the winter because winter means one thing, calorie deficiency. There's always a calorie deficiency during winter time because hunting is a lot harder when there's four or five feet of snow, and when the visibility is very low. So the body is pretty much getting ready for this period, and over millions of years, it had created this, this beautiful, helpful, this helpful resistance, the insulin resistance, so it can store enough body fat. So the body will pretty much use very little energy for a current situation. But will, it will make you feel exhausted. You're going to feel tired, because you're not getting energy for presence. And then... Um, you're storing and storing and storing the body fat that you're going to live off of for the future months in the winter. But the problem with the insulin resistance, it's only meant to last a month, a month, month and a half, and then more winter is here and body starts eating up its body fat. Well, these days, people live in insulin resistance for 20, 30 years. And uh, we actually had a conference with Hall and uh, one of the other professionals. Uh, he was a neurology professional on a human brain. Uh, that is taking care of the, the patients with Parkinson's and uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And he swears that pretty much all these disease on the brain is caused by the insulin resistance. Yes. The brain didn't get the energy, so he got sick. That's simple. You didn't feed the brain for the last 15 years properly. You felt terribly for the last 15 years. So you were slowly degrading the health of your brain until your brain got sick because it didn't it didn't have ability to get a sufficient amount of energy that it needed. So how do you cure insulin resistance? You switch the mechanisms. 
is stop consuming massive amounts of sugar and carbohydrates and you let the brain keep it feed off of ketones and you let your body get fat adaptive. That's how you cheer insulin resistance. That, that was one of the best explanations I've ever heard about insulin resistance. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's wonderful. The cool thing about all of that, like you said, carbohydrates are not essential. So we start eating more fats and proteins and eat less or none of the carbohydrates. Our bodies do fat adapt. And then this magical thing starts to happen. Like I think a lot of people understand that, like, they, or maybe they've heard that like fasting is a really good thing for them. And they try to do fasting, but they're not able to do it because they're so hungry and hangry and moody. And they, they're, they're cravings are through the roof and they just can't execute a fast where people that try eating this way, especially on a carnivore diet, they fast effortlessly, easily. Like it's almost an inconvenience to go eat. It's, it's, it's time consuming. People are just simply not hungry. They get to go about their day and do all kinds of things. So can you explain why fasting is such a great tool and why it should only really be used when you are fat adapted, especially on a carnivore diet? So most importantly, if you want to live life with the carbohydrate consumption, you must develop insulin flexibility. Uh, sorry, um, flexi metabolic flexibility. That means that your body will start consuming glucose when the glucose is in presence and ketones when the glucose is not in presence. Meaning you can switch from fat adaptation to the glucose consumption. And when the glucose is gone, body is calm, goes back to the fat consumption. How do you achieve that? Well, one great way to achieve that is intermittent fasting. During the feed-in time, when you eat your meal and the meal includes some carbohydrates, your body's processing the glucose. Now, that glucose is not going to last forever. It runs out to a certain degree. And then the body switches into a ketogenic state and starts burning off fat without really any problems, any hunger, and um, feeling that makes you upset and anxious. You know, because when you are carbohydrate, addicted. You can't really go without carbohydrates for a long period of time. You get sweaty, start getting shaky, start getting hungry, hangry. Uh, in certain degrees, you get hyperglycemia, which is the drop in the blood sugar levels. And uh, that's very unhealthy. I mean, a healthy human should never get to the point of hyperglycemia for no reason. You're way too sugar addicted, which means your body is pretty much incapable of producing its own glucose, because why should it? You've been feeding it sugar every single time you got hungry. So the gluconeogenesis, is the process that is designed to create sugar in your liver, is not even necessary for the past 15 years. Because every time you get hungry, boom, sugar. You get hungry, boom, sugar. So uh, that's why you start feeling sick. And you feel like, oh, I wouldn't be able to go without food for eight to 10 hours. I would die. Yes, with the current state of your metabolism, you wouldn't feel great. You wouldn't die. Nobody would die. But you wouldn't feel great. Let's put it this way. But if we make you fat adapted, now I can go long periods of time, 8, 10, 20 hours. Now, currently, I'm 70 hours fasted. I have not eaten for the last 70 hours. Okay, so it's a three-day fast that I'm doing right now. I'm going to break my fast after this podcast. I work, work out first, which is completely fine. I work out after 70 hours of not eating. Think okay, about that. For the listener, think morning. about that. Think about that. That's so important to say. Thank you. Yeah, so right after this, I can still beat my previous performance. Yesterday, when I exercised, I was 48 hours faster than I beat my previous performance yep. because my body is using up stored body fat for the fuel. And I feel amazing because the ketones are the primary source of the energy. So my muscles live off of the ketones too. I experience no performance deficiency. So um, I don't consume carbohydrates um, on daily 
anymore. I used to. I cut them out completely. My life quality is a lot better. I went out of carbohydrates and I put on a lot leaner mass. Like I eat a lot of fat, a lot of protein, and my physique is a lot tighter and better looking on protein and fat only. Every single time, especially if this fat at a patient's state, if I consume a lot of carbohydrates, I get puffy and watery very quickly because that's not my preferred source of energy anymore. So my body overreacts every single time I consume carbohydrates. That's another thing to recognize is that once when you're running strictly off of ketones and, and protein, you start eating some sugar. Let's say your your you know uncle has a birthday party and you have a couple of beers with him and a couple of slices of pizza, you're going to blow up like seven pounds from that because the body is not used to the carbohydrate consumption anymore and the water retention will be insane. Um, so pretty much I don't consume that on a daily basis anymore. I consume carbohydrates very rarely. Um, but on protein and fat only, I'm performing the best I ever performed. I feel the best I ever felt, and I have metabolic uh, flexibility, meaning that I can switch between two metabolism easily. So let's say I went out for a sushi and I, and I had a massive sushi meal. Right after the sushi meal, I can go 40 hours with no food at all and feel great, wow. which means I just consume four or 500 grams of carbs. I can go two days with no food and feeling great. If I did that, if I was sugar addicted, by nighttime, I would be starving. Starving. Meaning I would have to eat more. And if I ate more that night, where I already had a massive amount of carbohydrates, protein, and fat for lunch, well, now I'm pounding calories at night again, and I'm getting fatter and fatter. That's where the problem is. Carbohydrates don't make you hungry. They make you hungry. They suppress the leptin sensitivity, so your brain is not getting as much signal that you're full. When you're eating steak and, uh, steak and eggs, your leptin sensitivity is really high. As soon as your body's full, send the signal to your brain through the hormone called leptin that, hey, we've had enough food, shut the appetite down, we're good. And so appetite goes down, and all of a sudden, you're just talking to the person with a the, with the piece of steak on your fork, and you're just waving around. And you don't even put it in your mouth, you just sit there. This next clip is taken from episode 468 called Priming, Feasting, and Fasting with Carnivore Raymond Nazon. He was awesome. I had a really good time meeting him at CarnivoreCon this year. He did a presentation which was wonderful uh, with Emily Harvo, who we also hosted on episode 497 of our show. Um, she just kind of popped in on an episode without really knowing it way back in episode 424 where we interviewed um, attendees of Low Carbohydrate Denver. Um, she didn't know we were recording as I was chatting up some of our friends and she sat down started chatting and she made it onto the podcast, <laughs> but they were wonderful. I really wanted to include this clip um, to talk about priming, a big topic that Raymond talks about, um, and, and really understanding that when you start on a carnivore diet, you really need to eat way more food than you think. So I thought this would be really helpful as we're heading into World Carnivore Month. So here we go with Raymond. Priming, feasting, and fasting. Tell us how you came up with those terms and what you mean by each of those. Yeah. Uh, so feasting and fasting means, you know, you're pretty much eating as much as, as, uh, comfortably stuffed as you can so that you can have comfortable, uh, fasting. But the priming piece was very important because without the priming piece, you can't set yourself up for proper feasting and fasting from there. I, I use the analogy of uh, filling up a car, a gas tank. You fill it up all the way full. And then when it's full, it's fully primed, right? When it's fully primed, it takes a while for it to go down. So that means you can actually 
you can actually take a good hit. So you can have a lot of stress and then you're still not craving. You can have a lot of, you can have a lot of uh, uh, chances of under eating by accident or whatever. And it still won't affect you because you're properly primed. The idea is to make sure you're always at that full tank and knowing when you start uh, reducing. So priming became important. Priming, I wanted to keep it simple. I wanted to keep it simple for people to get it. And priming, all it is, is eating three meals a day plus for the first week. So in our snacks is included and actually having coffee or tea, if you have coffee or tea for dessert. That part, nobody really understood, right? The other three meals, they, they, they wrap their heads on pretty easy. That coffee or tea for dessert, people go they go kind of crazy on that. They're like, I can't do this. And I'm like, you know why you can fast until one o'clock all the time and think that it's a hunky-dory? Because you're suppressing your appetite. Why would you want to do that? If you're trying to listen to your body properly, get the coffee as a dessert. I'm not telling you to get rid of the coffee or tea or anything like that. Just do it after your meal. So that changed the whole ballgame. Okay. Awesome. So is priming just something that you do when you're first starting on a carnivore diet? Yes. So uh, that, I like, I like that. As a matter of fact, I even like priming for some, uh, some experienced carnivores that, uh, feel like they might have tendency to hungry because they're just used to being hungry all the time. And they, 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 I've had experienced carnivore that's telling me that, you know, they, they never went a day where they don't feel hungry all the time. And I'm like, yeah, you need to prime. Okay. You know, yes, it might be miserable, but you got to get that gas tank filled up. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So it's a cool tool that can be used really anywhere in somebody's journey, but especially when somebody is getting started or they're just chronically under eating. So that would be the first week, two weeks. What's kind of the average time that somebody's going to live there? Priming is a, it's a three week process actually. So the second week is actually where you're just eating three meals with no snacks. You're getting prepped up for, for less eating. Um, and then the third week is actually two meals and, uh, with no snacks. And it should be actually where your body's begging to go to those two meals. Uh, the idea behind it is getting you ready for the fast from there. And the way you test your priming is you go into a 23, one water fat, a water only fast. And that's how you test it, how well you've done. If you're not able to do any of those, whether it's two mads for seven days, um, with just, uh, with just, uh, without snacks, then obviously you're not ready. So that's how you find out whether you're primed. Okay. So you almost like test out of it. And that way, you know, you've got a three week average where most people can do that cadence and get, get it on in three weeks. But if other people are lagging behind, maybe they need a few more weeks of getting used to two meals a day that that test out would be a way that they would know they need to live there a little bit longer. Exactly. And also for experienced carnivores, you know, I, I noticed for them about a week is good enough for them or to a week and a half. So, you know, it, it, it does depend. And I don't want people to override by any means their, their crew. So in other words, I don't want them to overstuff themselves where they're sick either. So the idea is you're not overdoing priming. You don't want to overdo priming. You don't want to do it too often. It's not a good idea. You want that gas tank to go down. You know, so it's a balance, but it's an art too. To me, the beauty is when you start doing this and I see this aha light bulb moment, whenever people prime, they're like, I get it now. I get it what it means to be fully nourished. And that's the concept that I want them to feel what full nourishment feels like and what fasting on a full nourishment cycle feels like. I love that. 
That's amazing. Okay. So as, as we're going through the program, we're getting better at priming. We're kind of getting past that. Tell us about the feasting. What, what kind of patterns do you want people to get into when they do choose to eat? Yeah. So when they choose to eat, first of all, one of the biggest th- tricks that I have, if you're fasting, especially on my program, because we, we go as high as 72, I want you to be able to eat that same portion meal that you eat normally without any repercussions. That's also another key sign you're ready for that fast. If you're starting to have problems like brain fogs, fatigue, uh, cravings after a fast, any of those, you're not ready for that fast. Your body is just not ready to get there. So why would you want to push it extra hard? Don't get me wrong. There are special circumstances. For example, you know, if you have uh, Dr. Jason Fung will put people on 14 day fast right away. I get that. that. That's a whole, that's more medical. I'm not dealing with that. I'm dealing with people who can do constant fasting all the time. Okay. And get the benefit of that. Yeah. Gotcha. So we kind of need to reverse our thinking then rather than trying to force people into fasting, we need to overfeed prime people, overfeed them, get them into a pattern where they are sufficient, they're sufficiently taking in calories and nutrients when they do eat to then allow the fasting to come in and be something that's a lot more organic and, and not forced is, do I have that correct? Exactly. So what we know from the mice studies, for example, uh, Walter Longo made the mice study. He actually lowered the caloric restrictions on some mice. And then the other ones, uh, the other ones, he actually got them to fast. And under lower restrictions, yeah, their bodies looked better. They were leaner, but they didn't have any lifespan. On the ones that actually was forced to fast, but no calorie restriction allowed. So, you know, there were days that they, they would fast and then, uh, and then they would fully eat whatever they want they had longer lifespan and they their weight was in check and their spurs, everything looked good. So what we need to know is it's about the balance between your feast and the fast. It's not calorie restriction. It's not less calories. All calorie restriction is going to do for you is malnourish you. We go into a malnourished state. People think that they come in fat. They're like, I'm obviously fully nourished. No, it doesn't work that way. You're actually you're actually chronically uh, malnourished, and that's why I tell them. I know that doesn't make sense, but when you come to me, four or five hundred pounds, you're chronically malnourished. Yeah, you would think that would be such a paradox. It's definitely not one that you see in nature, and this does follow a very natural pattern. If you look at the patterns of other animals and how they hunt, if you think about the tiger, when the tiger gets hungry. It's time to hunt. It's not even necessarily time to eat. It's time to hunt. This is why fasted workouts work really well. You should do a lot of your workouts in the fasted state. You'll have better energy and mental clarity. You'll be able to lift more. I I think you'll be able to perform sports a lot better. I notice my hockey games and cycling is way better when I'm in the fasted state. So there's the tiger. It goes on the hunt. When it kills something, it feasts. It takes as many of the most nutrient and calories it can find. It got first choice of all of that stuff. So go in and eat whatever it can can until it's so full that it's just going to go back into the shade somewhere and take a nap and it will naturally fast because it doesn't need to be eating. It doesn't need three meals and three snacks. It doesn't need to hunt six okay. times for, you know, six times a day for yogurt and granola bars in between meals. So, so we see that pattern in other animals. It just makes a lot of sense that we could do the same thing and really thrive with that. That's right. We can mimic it. Now, just to be clear, I want people to understand this. So we don't come in metabolically healthy. What This process will get us metabolically healthy. In other words, don't come in and expect to just go right into feasting and fasting. 
because it's not going to work. You have to prime your body to get to that point, get it used to getting there. You know, the, 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 the tiger or whatever he, you know, there, this is, this is, this is what they do, right? They're metabolically healthy, but we come so broken that we actually have to fix ourselves to get our metabolism working again properly before we can actually do it properly later on. That's a really good point. We're dealing with two different metabolically healthy examples when we talk about that. Right. Now, now there's a little bit of controversy to this, although I don't really think there is. Is this something that can be done safely long-term? What is that? The feasting and fasting? Yes, feasting yeah. and fasting. So, yes. So I, I am a big proponent of alternate day fasts. Okay. So I, I was doing it, uh, let's see, uh, it's about, I've been doing it for four years, but only six months out of the year. Cause you know, I, I, at first I was scared because nobody's really done it for that long, but I was doing it literally for six months out of the year and six months I would just do carnivore. Only. And I saw the shifts enough with the first three years to notice that I actually get worse when I stay on carnivore only compared to the alternate day fast. So this year, I'm going to go through the whole year alternate day fasted. There will be breaks here and there. Like, for example, a keto con, I took like a, a 10 day break and uh, just uh, ate liberally, carnivore, of course. Uh, and then now I'm right back on the alternate day uh, fasting. But there's so much benefit on that alternate day fasting that I was like, I don't see why I would not do this as a lifestyle. So, this is what I actually try to get teach people that my program only teaches you the tip of the iceberg. And then there's the alternate day fast part to get to. It's a true mind shift because can you imagine socially how that does? It's not hard to do, but the social aspect is really the hard problem. Oh, I'm not going to eat tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Sorry, mom. I know it's your birthday. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's, there's, there's a lot of issues there. Uh, and of course for yourself, it's, it's, it's a cognitive shift because you've never done something like this before, but that's where I really truly shown in my, in my healing. Next, we are going to go to episode 445 on an episode titled Our Proper Human Carnivore Diet with Professor Bart K. This episode was our number one top downloaded episode of the entire year. So let's hear from Bart. Okay, another thing that people say, you need to eat a balanced diet. You need to have moderation. You need to have balance between carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Not too much of each. A good balanced diet will include all of those things. What, what is your response to that? Well, my response to that is that it's complete and utter hogwash. It's nonsense. Now, see, it's, it's a great piece of marketing. It's an awesome piece of marketing. Um, you take a powerful concept, a powerful construct, again, a construct, that people relate to. Balance. Balance is thought of to be equated with goodness and light and everything that we should aspire to in the universe. Goodness, the lady of justice even, has a pair of scales in one hand. Because, you know, justice and goodness and light is all about balance. Here's the thing, though. Here's the problem with that. Every single animal on this planet, including human beings, has evolved over, over a significant period of time on this planet, four billion years, give or take, in a specific niche. Okay? What do, um, what do cats eat? Well, they're carnivores. 
We know that because they have sharp pointy teeth like this and they catch things and kill them and eat them. Okay. Um, what do blue whales eat? Well, they eat plankton. They don't have sharp pointy teeth, but they're still a carnivore. Interesting, isn't it? The biggest carnivore on the planet. I no actually didn't even think about that. That's a good point. No teeth. I mean, all these people that say, oh, it can't be a carnivore because look, we don't have sharp pointy teeth like this. Well, that's awesome. Blue whale. Would somebody like to say, they haven't got the memo. Let them know that they should stop eating plankton immediately <laughs> because they don't have sharp pointy teeth. What about the hagfish? The hagfish is a, is a scavenger that eats dead whales mostly. They have an opening at the front of their body that's kind of like a mouth, never closes. It's got no teeth in it, just raspy pads to get the rotting flesh off the dead animals. That, somebody tell them they're not a carnivore too. How about birds of prey? They only have a beak, no sharp pointy teeth. They do have the claws of mind, but, you know, animals have, every animal has evolved in a niche with a technique of feeding themselves. Now, what I say to these people that say we can't be carnivores because look at our teeth. Okay, well, number one, we evolved from animals that ate fruit and lived in trees, and there was no negative selection pressure that would cause our body format to change shape so that we do have sharp pointy teeth. Here's why. We have a brain. We have the ability to communicate with one another. We have opposable thumbs and can fashion tools like sharp pointy sticks. We can throw stones. We can string guts of animals across sticks and fire other pointy sticks. We can work together. We can yell and scream and make a lot of noise and we can scare animals and, you know, all of that. So we don't need sharp pointy teeth. I have never seen a cave painting of hunting men diving at woolly mammoths with their mouths open. They've always got sharp pointy sticks. That's our technique. We've, we, we developed with that. That's, that's how we've evolved. And then you look at our organ systems, our body plan, our metabolic pathways, the structures in our digestive system, and we do some comparative anatomy and physiology, and we go, geez, we look, we look much more like a carnivore than we look like a herbivore in any way, shape, or form. Um, and then you go to something like stable isotope testing, and stable isotope testing is done with nitrogen isotopes found in the long bones of skeletal remains of humans found anywhere on the planet of any age over about 11,000 years and under about 350,000, because that's how long humans have been here on the planet in our current speciation. Throughout that time, 350,000 years ago, give or take, up to about 11,000 years ago, what human beings ate was unequivocally, absolutely, without any question, that means meat and fat of animals. Almost no plant material of any kind whatsoever. Makes sense because for most of that time, the earth was frozen over and there wasn't too many plants to be had, frankly. Um, so that's kind of, that's a definite answer. That's what we have eaten. That's how our body plans are. That's basic common sense. But the absolute slam dunk, other than the nitrogen testing that says that's what we did eat, you look at our metabolic pathways and you look at how they, what the systems are and how they work and how they interact. And the question is, are our metabolic pathways designed that we can do well consuming a diet which is mixed in terms of most notably carbohydrates and fats at the same time? The answer is no. 
we have a, it's called a cycle, and I don't know why, because it's not a cycle. We have parts of our um, metabolic pathway that work together in a certain way. It's called the Randall cycle because it was proposed originally by a bloke called Sir Philip Randall in about 1962 or 63. So this is not new information. We've known about this a long time. What Philip Randall proposed was that anytime you have a significant amount of both fat and carbohydrate in your diet at the same time, those two nutrients will lock each other out or cross-compete each other out for access to the mitochondria for oxidative phosphorylation to produce ATP for metabolic work. Think of it this way. Two fat men trying to push their way through a revolving door designed for one at the same time and being ever harder pushed from behind by fat men on each side. That's basically the most simple analogy for the Randall cycle I can come up with, really. I love that. So what you get is if you eat a diet that's rich in fat and protein, no problem. Your body will metabolize the fat for energy and use the protein for body structures. Any excess fat will be stored on your body as fat, pretty much, because the body is thrifty and it won't be wasting resources. And it will save that for a rainy day because also we evolved not eating every day, let alone four and five times a day. We ate every other day, every third day, when we were lucky enough to take down a beast, basically. Um, so there's that. Um, if you if you take in a diet that's rich in carbohydrate and has some protein in it, sure, and is poor in fats, the Randall cycle won't be a problem for you either unless you intake a vast amount of carbohydrate, which a lot of these people do. So that's fine as well in terms of the Randall cycle. But one of those diets, the one that's rich in protein and animal fat, and the one that's rich in plant materials but poor in animal products, one of those diets is destitute of nutrition required by a human being, and one of them is not. So while you alleviate the short-term issue, the Randall cycle, you subject yourself to the very real probability of catastrophic health failure down the track if you don't eat a species-appropriate, species-specific diet of the flesh. And by flesh, I mean muscle meat, not organs, muscle meat and fat of large ruminant animals, no plants. Okay. What is the problem with the Randall cycle being activated all the time? Well. The Randall cycle is not an on-off switch. It's more like a fader that you would pull up and down on an audio board. It has a hysteresis, which means it's, it's like an inertia. You can pull the fader immediately by changing what you eat, but there is a time delay on that effect filtering through to your metabolic system. And it can be several hours before your body reacts and changes direction in terms of your metabolic state. So while ever you've got all this vast overplus of energy in your bloodstream and ergo, therefore trying to enter your cells to be oxidized for energy, fats and carbohydrates, this mixture, you're awash with, with substrate to use for that. 
your mitochondria is jammed up because of the fat men trying to get through the door. Nothing can get through, or a lot less, because it's a fader, not an on-off. What happens then is that the redox potential of the cells will drop because the cells will be using up the energy. Nonetheless, the energy can't flow through because they're cross-competing each other out. When that happens, the amount of ATP that you can produce drops, so the amount of work that your cells can do drops, firstly. And secondly, the concentration of ADP plus inorganic phosphate builds up in the cell. Inorganic phosphate binds to a whole bunch of cytokines, pro-inflammatory cytokines, and activates them and turns them on. When you become inflamed, it's because inorganic phosphate has bound to that cytokine and set that system off. So you're going to spend three, four, five hours inflamed because you've eaten a mixed diet. And then it'll all filter through and everything will stabilize and you'll go back to normal and that'll be fine. By which stage you'll feel hungry again and you'll repeat that again. You'll eat another meal that's mixed in terms of carbohydrate and fat and you'll inflame yourself again for the next four or five. You'll spend your whole life inflamed, basically. And inflammation is the absolute underpinning cause, the etiology of atherosclerosis heart disease. That's an inflammatory response, not a lipid problem at all. Okay. Further to heart disease, it's the cause of type 2 diabetes, heading towards type 1 diabetes, all sorts of autoimmune conditions, most forms of dementia, basically all the big killers in Western society. They are all underpinned by chronic systemic inflammation as a result of eating a diet which is inappropriate for your species. Simple as that. What is the answer? Stop eating plants. And this was our second most downloaded episode, episode 477, which was titled Sugar Addiction with world-renowned expert Bitten Johnson. We don't necessarily talk about carnivore diets in this case, but I thought this was super relevant and a lot of people out there um, can relate to feeling like they are addicted to sugar, which is Bitten's specialty. So let's learn from her. Okay, so you already explained dopamine, which was a fantastic explanation. I want to reiterate that. I read a book a few years ago and it got so depressed that I only read the first three chapters. So I need to go back and and read it again. But I I believe the title was Dopamine Nation. And it talked about how we are so overstimulated with dopamine, whether it's, like you said, gambling, sugar, opening my phone. Do I have notifications? Who commented on my Twitter tweet? You know what I mean? Like there's so much stimulation that our body does something called down regulation. Can you talk a little bit about dopamine and how our body down regulates it? Yeah, absolutely. I know exactly which book you mean. And I've studied dopamine since 1985 when I was in treatment. I learned about the dopamine research already at that time. First of all, I like to point out that dopamine is the conductor in the symphony of neurotransmitters. So it's not all about dopamine. It's just the initiator. And then you have endorphins, you have adrenaline, you have noradrenaline, you have GABA, you have acetylcholine, you have other neurotransmitters that are affected by this dopamine, you know, ripple in your brain. Think about it as a pendulum, you know, dopamine senses, should it be gas or brake, gas pedal or brake? 
So then it sends, you know, the ripple through the brain to all those different, uh, you know, if it is a downer or an upper. So let's stick with that for a while. So you have to understand that, uh, you know, it's more than dopamine affected in your brain. Uh, then something happens that it's not talked about a lot today, the way I was trained and taught this, which I think is very important to understand, is it's going to be a upregulation. You know, your body is so smart and it strives for homeostasis all the time to keep in balance. You do a lot of stupid things, then your body is there. Oh my God, now he's doing this. Oh, now he's doing this. We have to counteract, you know, blood pressure, pulse, heartbeat, everything. Your body is always trying to balance. That's what homeostasis is beautiful. You are a magic thing. You know, every cell in you are magic. So anyway, what's going to happen is that when you start taking a psychoactive substance and you have this genetic sensitivity, maybe small or big, or you're in a culture where you're flooded with the drug or maybe just a little, those that combination is hard to see. Is it 30% or 70 or we can never know that. But anyway, so then when you start taking something and your dopamine going to kickstart that pendulum, you know, up and down and you get the kick and the high and the down and the uh, relaxation and all that. What's going to happen is that your brain going to say, oh, my goodness, we don't have enough receptors for all this neurotransmitter flooding that is caused here. So we're going to make more receptors. That is upregulation, okay? Because the brain is smart. It has to counteract this stuff. And then you keep taking the drug. And the way it works is that every time you have a release of neurotransmitter, some die. You know, they are, you know, breaks down. That's the way we, we work. They breaks down and you have to make new ones. People that are doing drugs, sugar is one, they don't live very healthy. And you need to eat a lot of protein in order to make new dopamine. You have to have a good microbiome, you know, your normal flora. So, of course, you don't have that. So it's going to come a day when you keep eating sugar and da-da-da-da. And suddenly your brain is going to say, oh, my goodness, now I have too much receptors, which causes a horrible craving and not enough dopamine and endorphins and GABA and all that. So wait a minute, we need to block some off. Okay, you know, so now that's the down regulation. It has to block them off. What's, how do you feel when that happened? Well, you're depressed, you have mood swings, you're irritated, you have what we call volatile blood sugar. Now your body cannot keep up the homeostasis anymore. You probably have insulin resistance. Uh, you get, I mean, I could go, we could spend, for hours just talking consequences from this on all levels in the body, physical, psychological, social, spiritual, you start losing yourself. We call it short, foggy brain, you know. That's a miserable feeling. You're tired and wired. That's horrible. Okay. Uh, I used to say it's like having a Ferrari in the garage, you know. You push on the gas pedal in the bottom, but you screw down to the floor. Ooh. Oh, you feel miserable and you're going to get disrupted sleep and disrupted stomach and all kinds of problems. 
And basically, you're going to lose all your energy. So, you know, everything is like climbing up Mount Everest, no oxygen, 40 kilos of packing, no help, no Sherpa. So now you're in bad shape, right? But you keep, here is also the difficult thing where you are more into drug-seeking behavior. You want you want something that's going to fix this problem, you know, with be, having foggy brain and being miserable, but you have this horrible craving because the more the effect goes down, the higher the craving go. See what I mean? So now you are on this weird thing eating, although you know you get sick from it, but you can't stop. And not everybody get overweight, but many get very overweight. Then you still can't stop. And that horrible feeling inside of you, knowing that you're doing this to yourself, but you are driven by this crazy biochemistry that is totally out of whack in your brain. And you keep doing these things. And and that's a horrible feeling. You try to find reasons, excuses, solutions. But, you know, unless you really know about your addiction and learn about the biochemistry in the brain, you cannot fix this problem. You need professional help to understand what addiction is all about, how your whole brain has been upregulated, downregulated, all the consequences, so we can start working on healing you. And I always say to my clients, you have, it takes about 18 to 24 months for your brain to heal. And you should not do any therapy during that part. You should only learn to live one day at a time, you know, with routines and be rigorous, but not rigid because perfectionism is going to throw you right back into the dieting again. So this is what a lot of people don't understand, that it takes a long time to rewire your brain because your brain is now has faulty wiring. I used to say that it's like the most beautiful castle in the world. All the electricity, all the cords are drawn, but there's no cream in them. You see what I mean? It's only cream in your reward center and your reptilian brain. That's drug, drug, drug. That's all that matters, you know. And you are terrified giving up the drug because you think, I'm going to die. I can't live without this. But, you know, so you have to take away the drug and you start to have to rebuild your brain in order to rebuild your body and start making, creating new neurons, new connections, and new rewire. You have to rewire your brain. And that's a tough thing. So, you know, some people are like, I can't do it. I'm not going to even start because I can't handle it. So, you know, I wish there were treatment centers that could work according to this model where people could stay like, you know, six to eight weeks and be pampered and fed good food. So, you know, all these negative effects are going to drain away and they're going to start getting their energy and their joy and vivacious life back and then go out and do it. But think about it. You have to do this all by yourself. Maybe you can afford some support once a week and go to a support group. Um, and people are going to tell you you're crazy. You could eat in moderation, which is a white unicorn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I mean? Uh, you know, you have kids, you work, you might not have a lot of money to spend on this. Talk about uphill. Wow. And this is what hurts me so much to see so many people needing this, wanting this, 
but it is such a hurdle to get over. So, you know, all the, the, the strength to all of you that fights out there, but please seek support. Join a support group that can, uh, you know, help you and stay away from coaches that tell, tell you to have a, a beach 23 vision this summer or oh, think about three months down the road, you could lose the weight. I tell you what, it's all about 24 hours. It's only one day at a time. That's all you can handle and do. And if you can really stop your mind from thinking about two days from now and, and think, I shall only do this for today and I'm going to seek support. And only for today, seek support. For today, seek support. Then you have a chance to fix this. Yeah. Wow. That was such a wonderful explanation. I love that. Our next clip comes from episode 476, titled Long-Term Carnivore Diets with returning guest, Dr. Lisa Wiedemann. She was another person I was able to meet this year. Really awesome person. We've hosted her before in the past in episode 336. Be sure to check out this full episode. I think it was really helpful to understand whether this can be a long-term solution for a lot of people. She herself has been on a carnivore diet for over a decade. So here is Dr. Wiedemann. We want to try to prevent strokes, Alzheimer's, cancer, diabetes, you know, you name it. Uh, it's, it's really important that we pay attention because we're not told that we're committing slow suicide when we eat all that toxic poison. You know, it's, it's the sugars, the grains, the seed oils, the processed foods are just so incredibly addictive and so incredibly damaging over a period of time, because that's the big problem with this, you know, with drugs, heroin, alcohol, you have a pretty immediate penalty when you overdo it. And you have a risk of uh, killing somebody, dying, overdosing, all that. But with, with this whole sugar, carb, garbage food, standard American diet, I like to call the standard atrocious diet, the SAD, um, there's, there's really no forewarning uh, and people are just, everything surrounds uh, food, social, holidays, when you're out with coworkers, business meetings, it's food, food, food. And a lot of restaurant foods all have the canola, soybean oil, cottonseed oil, palm oil that they're cooked in. People say, oh, well, I don't eat seed oils. Well, maybe you don't go to the grocery store and buy a bottle of Crisco, but Sure enough, if you're eating standard food, anything pretty much that comes in a box, a bag, a bottle, or a jar is going to have these toxic oils, which really take about over six years to clear out of your system when you stop. And I see you just pulled out Dr. Kenobi's amazing book, The Ancestral Diet Revolution. I love it um, because one of my passions as an my doctor and also my own father suffered a uh, very debilitating um, vision loss from macular degeneration uh, because I couldn't convince my own parents to do this crazy way of life. And nobody wants to believe me that you have to stop eating mayonnaise and salad dressing and not getting, you know, fried calamari at the restaurant because it's all so incredibly toxic. It stores in your body. And if anybody, you know, listens to Dr. Kenobi's presentations, that there's many of them on uh, YouTube now, 
and his amazing book. And he's got a great website, cureamd.org. It's all for him trying to devote the um, his time and knowledge to spread it that people understand that he's thousand percent convinced it is from seed oils. That's the thing in the last hundred years that has so exponentially increased that has been causing um, really the the downfall of our our population. Yeah, he does such a convincing job in this book as well. We were fortunate enough to host him again so he could come on and kind of explain, you know, the things that he had discovered with all his research, which is years and years and years he's been researching this. And he makes a really compelling case in that book that it is the seed oils and not necessarily the sugar. And and it, it's it's a really interesting point. And, you know, we can get caught up in semantics and try to determine which one it is. They just, they flow together. If you're having one, you're going to have the other. Um, and, you know, I was just talking to a sugar addiction specialist not long ago, Tia Reed, who came on our show. And I said, okay, here's the deal. If you tell me cocaine and heroin are addictive, I don't really have a problem because at this stage of my life, like I don't have a guy, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know where to find it. It's probably around somewhere, but I can't really get it. If you tell me sugar is addictive, there's a huge problem because I can find it everywhere at every store yesterday at the park at 1030 in the morning, a food truck pulls up and parks and starts setting up donut kebabs whatever the hell donut kebabs is can't be great. It's delicious, amazing, incredible food that is poisoning everybody. And you can find it. It's everywhere. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. And that's why I find that I, I, I know um, a few people who have really resolved themselves of drug addiction, cigarette addiction, alcohol addiction, and uh, a bulimic heavy food addiction. And they said by far, the other three were so simple compared to the food addiction. And it's really because there's tr triggers everywhere. I mean, you walk into a grocery store before you get two steps into the very first door that opens up from floor to ceiling. There's, you know, the jalapeno kettle chips, the crispiest you'll ever have, you know. And then the other thing is the bakery has got a whole display wafting the aroma of the baked goods. And it's like you. You, you don't have a fighting chance at this point when you're an addict, you know, so it's really difficult. And that's why I'm very strongly uh, in favor of uh, having groups and having community because it's so not easy to do this by yourself because your friends and family, they're all like laughing and enjoying the food and just having fun. And, you know, it's not until you potentially get into your 50s, 60s, 70s, where it really has now struck you. If you're lucky enough to have gotten obese from it or gotten a disease young enough, like Michaela Peterson, um, and you search for the answer soon enough, <laughs> then, then you have a good shot of at least having. But most, most people are really at the point where it, you, you don't realize it, but you keep eating this stuff and eventually it's going to catch up. And most people say, oh, don't get old. This happens when you get old. And they accept these things as just kind of diseases of old age. And I say, no, I'm going to be hiking a mountain when I'm 70. Like this is not appropriate. Arthritis is from inflammation from, and we could say, so you're, you know, I, I do listen to his whole, um, presentation about how it really, he mainly has pinpointed it to seed oils and not specifically necessarily the sugar. But like you said, 
a lot of times it goes hand in hand. You know, it's the the churros and the cookies. It's like it's fat and sugar, right? And that's the combination of salt, fat, and sugar makes things so incredibly addictive. Aside from the aside from the fact that they have addiction specialists on staff at these food companies to purposely do this, it's really kind of crazy. But I think that sugar itself is inflammatory and addictive. And whether it's the seed oils actually causing the cellular damage, which there's some real powerful graphics that you could uh, look at and watch and see that when these seed oils get into the wall of our cellular membrane and disrupt it and inflame it, and the fact that they stay there for so long, it's got a half-life of like, like, I don't know, two or three years. I forget now. I keep I keep hearing different numbers. But basically, and basically, basically six years down the road, if you stop eating it today, six years, you pretty much have a pretty good shot of having most of it cleared out. Yeah. But it's crazy. It, it, yeah. It's crazy. We'll tag we, this is the most tagged video on our show, but we'll tag it again. It'll be in the show notes. The How It's Made TV series that did the episode that had the segment on canola oil. When you watch this, set it is a horror show. You you think this beautiful golden, you know, bottle in plastic at the grocery store came from this like pristine source. Like, no, it didn't. It's a bunch of sludge that's been chemicalized and heated to ultra high sources. It's it's a it's a nightmare. It's a toxic nightmare. <laughs> And, and, and we're so, it's so unassuming that we are just randomly, you know, I, I sit there and I watch all these people eating French fries and onion rings. And I look and I'm like, oh, they just don't know. They do not know that that was just deep fried in this toxic sludge and they're putting it in. And not only at that meal, but every day. And it's, it's in everything, you know, so unless you're eating a really clean whole foods diet, it's, it's really in, in everything. And, you know, when I'm at restaurants now, like, even if you think you're getting a healthy pan seared salmon, you know, on the menu, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to stay away from the fried seafood. And I'm going to stay, you know, and I'm just going to order, well, they, they squirt that oil in the pan before they set your salmon in it and flip it. Why? Because it has a high heat uh, smoking point, so they like to cook with it. It does a good job at crisping up, which the texture, that's what the chef likes to see, that nice brown edge. And because it's gone through this eight-stage chemical process, uh, it's pretty much odorless and flavorless, so it's not imparting um, a strong flavor onto the food. And so... You, you think that you're at a restaurant, even high-end restaurants, getting a nice piece of salmon. Well, I tell them when I order even a steak, I say, can you please tell them I cannot eat any oil? I even go so far saying I'm allergic to oils. They can't use any oil on my food. And I say they can use as much butter or bacon grease as they want, but I can't have oil. And that's really the best way to get around because people are like, well, uh, I mean, what's the deal? I can't go out and eat at restaurants anymore. Well, it's pretty tough, but there's actually an app on the phone now that um, is to um, locate restaurants in their seed oil use or their seed oil non-use. Wow. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Seed Oil Scout. It's a free app. Seed Oil Scout. S-O-S is the cute little 
emblem for it there, the the graphic Seed Oil Scout SOS. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So, Amazing. Just, I'm just I always try to spread any information that I can to help people to avoid this toxic stuff. But the most important thing is getting people to really understand that that simple little, um, you know, craft Italian uh, dressing that people are marinating their chicken in when they grill it and pouring on their salads. It's so, so unhealthy. It's so horribly toxic to our bodies and people don't know. They just don't know. So a big thank you to Dr. Lisa Wiedemann for giving us that interview and talking about Seed Oil Scout. Because of the tip that we got from Dr. Wiedemann, we actually went out and found the developer of the Seed Oil Scout app, and we were able to interview him. That was back in episode 494, if you'd like to learn more about that. That was a kind of unique one because he couldn't reveal his identity um, as this is not his day job. And the app is really wonderful. I really enjoy it, and and they have a lot of really great contributions. Next, we're going to go to episode 478 which is entitled Keto Demystified with best-selling author Craig Emmerich. I think he does a great job in this episode teaching us how to get started on a low-carbohydrate or a carnivore diet. In, in our keto book, we talked about kind of the phases of adapting, um, and we kind of grouped it into three phases. Um, when you start cutting the carbohydrates, uh, the body, you know, in the standard American diet, you're, you're primarily burning glucose as your fuel because you got so much glucose coming in and there's something called oxidative priority where the body prioritizes fuels. And it says, if I have this fuel glucose, I'm not going to burn fat because I'm going to store the fat because I, I need to burn the glucose first. And the reason for oxidative priority is primarily a inverse. It's inversely proportional to how much storage space you have for each fuel. Okay. So what's the number one fuel alcohol? Cause there's no place to store it. We have no storage space for alcohol and guess what? Too much alcohol in the blood is going to kill you. Right. And so you, you got to burn the alcohol first. And so if any other fuels are coming in, whether you're eating snacks or food or carbs, that's all got to get stored away. Well, I deal with the alcohol. And so that is oxidative priority. And so when you're eating lots of carbohydrates, the fat is that coming with the, with the food is getting stored away and it's kind of get building up in your fat cells and you're burning that glucose all the time. Um, and so uh, it, it primarily burning the glucose. So once you start cutting the, out of the diet, you know, the, the, the liver only has, you know, a couple hundred calories of, of carbohydrate it can store. The, the glycogen that's the, the glucose that's stored in your muscles, that's locked away in the muscles. You can only use that uh, in the muscle and primarily only through intense exercise. That's, that's another thing that, you know, a misconception people think I'll uh, go on a two, two hour or, or an hour, uh, 30 minute brisk walk and think I'm, you know, tapping all the glycogen in my muscles. No, you're probably not even touching it. The glycogen in the muscle is basically when you're sprinting, when you're doing intensity or duration, like marathon, then you're tapping into that muscle, a brisk walk or a 30 minute, you're probably barely even touching that. And so that's all locked away. It's just what's in the liver. So once the liver burns through what it's got, now it's got to say, okay, uh, I need another fuel because you're not eating carbs now. So I'm going to start switching to burn fat, but the body isn't, can't like switch instantly. Um, there's kind of adaption period. And part of the adaption period, it, studies have actually shown your cells will make more mitochondria to more efficiently burn fat directly as its fuel. Okay. And so the first, uh, 
phase is kind of that first three days or so where the body's running out of glucose and your ketones will come higher because the body's looking for fuel. Okay. It's trying to transition. Um, you might be struggling with energy at that point, and you're probably going to go over your fat. What we would tell clients is their fat you know, limit uh, at that point. You're going to be more hungry. You're going to need to eat more um, because the body's looking for fuel. Um, then there's kind of the next phase, which happens uh, anywhere from a couple weeks to maybe a month or six weeks is where you get that fully adapted state. So now you've made the new mitochondria, your, your body's really good at burning fat as its primary fuel now, and what we would call keto adapted, where you can efficiently burn fat as your fuel. That's when the hunger goes down, the cravings go down, the you get into this state where you, know, you just have that even energy all day long, the mental clarity, all of the kind of things that you, you think of with a keto, a keto or carnivore type of diets uh, from the mental or just how you feel. Um, and then there's kind of another phase of if you've been doing this long enough, year, two years, you can still see some improvements in athletic performance and things. There's even Volk and Fiddy did, did a study on this. Uh, I think it was one year out or maybe it was two. Uh, they looked at athletes and they were improving their efficiency uh, at, at when they were keto for that long. So versus a study where they were maybe just two months keto. So there's efficiencies that are continuing to happen, you know, as you stay in this uh, lifestyle longer. Yeah. But that's kind of generally the kind of phases we look at. I love that. If we go back to phase one, do you generally recommend that people kind of go cold turkey and and deal with that kind of energy crash like you talk about? Or do you recommend that people do it more gradually or can people do either one? Um, you can do it either way, but I'll tell you it's to gradually wean off carbs is going to be hard because, you know, you get, you can't just eat one, you know, potato chip or you can't, you know, it's just going to be, it, it, especially for people that are obese or have, you know, binge eating and, and you know, these type of disorder, you, you're not going to be able to stop yourself when you get to those carbs and you're, you're weaning, you're trying to wean. We generally find it's better to just go cold Turkey, just take it, get it all out of the house. Because that's the other thing in that early stage, when your body's like looking for fuel, those you know, cupcakes or whatever it is in the pantry are going to be calling your name all day. If you're in that state, right? Like you're just going to not be able to avoid them if they're not in the house. Uh, and especially what we tell people is make one of that's, this is where you can make one of Maria's desserts and one of these keto treats, desserts, whatever your cravings are, you know, craving for, uh, to satisfy that craving, but stay on track. That's a great time to have those. Yeah. I think it's also good to examine yourself and know whether you are more of a moderator or more of an abstainer. For me, I learned about myself. I have to abstain. It sucks. I would love yeah. to have a bite of something here or there. And I just, I, I can't do it because it leads to more things. I will not stop. And then I'll get crazy anxious or something stupid. So it's just like, I have to stay away where maybe some people could dabble in it, but I, I tend to agree with you. I think it's easier if somebody just accepts, like, let me, let me just step away from sweet things for a little while. Like maybe I can reintroduce them later, or maybe I'm just going to feel so good anyway on the other stuff that I won't even really miss it. So I love that. And then what things do you recommend to help people feel, you know, not so crappy as they're making that transition? Yeah. Uh, one, one quick point on the occasional thing. We have had so many clients that will come back to us a year later and they've gained all the weight back and it, 
Turns out over the holidays, they had, they were going to have that one cupcake and that's it. They were just going to have one. And six months later, they've gained all the weight back. You know, that's so common where people, if they think they're just going to have one and they end up off the wagon for six months and it's just, it's, it's a bad cycle. It, it's really almost like an addiction. I mean, you know, and it's kind of crazy too, in a social standpoint, you know, if, if you or I were an alcoholic and decided to stop alcohol and we were at a party together, I'm not going to push a beer on you. I'm not going to push a beverage on you, but if I you know, abstain from sugar and you go to a party, somebody's going to have that cupcake and like, come on, you can just have one. It's not going to kill you. But you really got to, you know, for, especially if you're, you know, obese or morbidly obese, you got to treat it a lot of times like that. It's got to be treated like an addiction. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, in the, in the beginning phases, uh, if you, the biggest thing that you can do is uh, get your electrolytes up, uh, you know, carbohydrates retain water. Um, and the more carbohydrates you eat, the more water you retain, but the less you uh, eat when you cut them out, the retained water gets flushed out of your system. And that's why people, a lot of times in the beginning of keto, they'll lose, you know, they go keto or carnivore and they'll lose five, 10 pounds in the first week. It's the water weight that they're losing. Um, but when the water goes, so the electrolytes go too. whenever water comes out of you, it's salty. It's, it's losing electrolytes. And so in the early stages, a lot of times that kind of struggle with energy is uh, dehydration. And if they just keep their electrolytes up, uh, taking electrolyte drinks, staying hydrated, uh, it'll mitigate a lot of that low energy. This clip is taken from episode 536, entitled The Great Plant-Based Con, Part 2, with author Jane Reese Buxton. She is wonderful. We had a lovely chat. I definitely recommend checking out her amazing book that came out last year, 2022, called The Great Plant-Based Con. You had an entire entire chapter dedicated to the carnivore diet, which I really yeah. respect because I, I, I'm not sure. I wanted to not ask you because I don't know how your thoughts have evolved on the carnivore diet since we last talked. Yeah. Um, but you were not a carnivore. This is not a carnivore book, but you mm -hmm. included it to mm -hmm. show the fact that this is at least happening. People are like not dying. So how has your thinking evolved on the carnivore diet itself over time? Well, the... Um when I included the chapter, it was because I felt it was really important, again, to counter that view that plants are always great and meat's always bad, right? So, and I didn't want to just say, well, meat's not bad, as you pointed out earlier. I wanted to give evidence of the fact that meat can be healing, meat can be good, meat can cure conditions like eczema or psoriasis. It has helped people to cure in a mental illness, bipolar disorder. And there are numerous cases of this um, emerging all the time. At the moment, because of the way research is funded, et cetera, they are very much anecdotal, but there's a mass of anecdotes as you, you know, so a bunch of N1s make a lot, make a lot of uh, evidence, right? N equals one make a lot of evidence. Um, so I always knew that the diet had the ability to be healing for some people. Um, my editors did resist putting that chapter in and I hung tight because I, you know, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to make that point. Since then, has my thinking evolved? Um, I think I've just got more examples of how it heals people. I think I've become more convinced that for some people, it is the ultimate. And 
you, you can get 80 to 90% of your nutrients from a very carefully planned um, carnivore diet. And that whatever you miss is made up for by the healing effects of that diet for particular people, right? So, and I, I've been privileged to join occasionally a book club, which is run by the Plant Free MD, um, Anthony Chaffee. I'm in and there his too. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And I saw you on one of those in one of those sessions. I saw you flying by saying hi. I remember a couple of months ago. And um, so I learn every time I attend one of those sessions, I learn a bit more about why people have gone carnivore, what it does for them, how difficult or easy it is for them, how they're feeling at that moment, what they think about research that's coming out. So it's a real, you know, it's a great privilege to be able to keep learning about that diet but that i have to tell you though that one of that is one of the things whereas if i say to somebody that vegetable oils aren't very good for you they don't look at me like i'm crazy when i tell them that all meat diets can be very good for you and very healing they do look at me like i'm crazy Mm. you know your average person that i'm speaking to yeah so i do feel for you guys because um it's an uphill battle persuading people. I think if if we omnivores have been sort of made pariahs in a way the past five years and told that we're eating the wrong way, you carnivores get that in, in spades, right? You get so much more to, to contend with in terms of that criticism. Yeah, it's it's... It's not, yeah, it's hard. Um, you know, we went on a vacation recently and the people we were with, we tried to explain how we live and, you know, we'll order different things. It's, it's fine. And the guy kept pressing me like, so you don't like rice? You don't like bread? You don't like risotto? And I'm like, no, I love all of those things. I can't have them. Yeah. Like they make me have anxiety. And you really get this sense right. on something like a book club. You know, it's one thing to listen to Dr. Chafee and it's one thing to see him and meet him in person. Same as Sean Baker. I know you probably met at least Sean Baker in yeah. person. Big, healthy. I, I, and Anthony, Anthony, yeah, yeah. perfect. Um, And you know, it's one thing because they're doing the content. When you're in the book club, you're on the ground. These are regular everyday people in varying forms of, of, you know, where they are in their journey. And they're just really humble. They're trying to learn. They're trying to get a good message and they're there for healing. They are sick of being sick. And so, yeah, Yeah. it's tough for them. Um, But I do have to say you are on the leading edge. Carnivore is getting a little bit more attention. This is the latest New Yorker magazine just came out this week. um, And there's an article called Redshift is an all meat diet. What nature intended. So there's actually an article about carnivore. Now I just have to say it's from the New Yorker. So obviously this is going to be very biased. And so the two main characters are going to be Paul Saladino and the liver king. And they come out and say the liver king was found to be taking tons and tons of steroids. And then the very end of the article concludes um, with Paul Saladino himself publishing Carnivore Code. He has acknowledged the benefits of carbohydrate. He now incorporates fruit, honey, kefir into his daily fare. And it it says in true paleolithic fashion, even meat fluencers struggle to resist the pull of plants. So the stuff in here is like, it's not wrong, but it's very biased. Um, yes. One of the things they talk about is a book that um, is called Eat Like the Animals. And a point it makes in here is very similar to a point made in Game Changers. Remember mm-hmm. that big, strong dude? And he made the point yeah. that like, if you want to be strong like an ox, you need to eat like an ox. And that's what I'm doing. And that's why I'm so strong. So these guys kind of mm-hmm. take the same point and say like, we shouldn't think of ourselves as animals. Um, 
and and here's why. What two animals would you guess they use in here to compare? This animal eats this, so we should be eating that way as well. This animal eats this. They Get- don't use elephant. Do they use elephants or <laughs> locusts? Locusts. <laughs> locusts. Grasshoppers. grasshoppers basically it says that if they don't balance the protein and carbs in their diet they get very sick oh my god that's unreal isn't it (laughs) that's amazing and then and then they bring it back a little bit more reasonable and they don't just limit it to insects um they basically compared rats and and did some study none of this is cited so you have no idea where when this is from they said it was released in 2014 whatever it is they found that protein-laden diets don't just age animals they kill them faster quote our sexy lean mice to eat high protein low-carb diets were the shortest lived of all they made great looking middle-aged corpses (laughs) oh my lord that's yeah. what people read. You know what I mean? Like, it's cool that it's being published, but people are going to walk away from that and go, yeah, of course I should eat like the locust. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People um, think that the New Yorker is a very highbrow, intelligent magazine, right? And so they will take that and use it as their barometer because they maybe don't have time to read anything else. Um, it, it's ridiculous. The idea of actually trying to replicate any animal you know, we can learn some things from animals, but we're built entirely differently. You know, it's insane. We're going to go back to the episode that we did with Courtney Luna, and we're going to go to a different part of the episode. I thought it would be nice to kind of break these up and get a little bit more practical advice from Courtney here. Okay. Also socially, um, when you're out and doing things and trying to be with other people, what are some tips and tricks that, that you have found that helps you to stay on the diet when, you know, you're hanging out with a family that does not do that diet or that there's a birthday party or any of those other situations that can make it kind of awkward and make you feel like you're standing out because you choose to eat this way? Yeah. I mean, you can always eat before. Um, I mean, unless you're going to a seated dinner party, that might be a little obvious what you're doing. Um, you can eat before you can put some meat in your fanny pack. Like I do. Um, or even if you are like sitting down with someone at dinner, like you just order meat or you just, you know, leave the veggies on the plate. If it's, you know, being served to you at a party, like, I I don't think I, you don't need to explain yourself. Um, if you want to, that's great. If you don't want to talk about it, you could just say, you know, I'm doing, um, an elimination diet right now because I'm having some issues or, you know, and I think there's a lot of pressure people feel to like, say over the holidays, well, your aunt Martha made this cake, so you need to eat it. And I like to say like, no is a complete sentence. Like you can say no. Okay. Maybe you could have some manners and say, no, thank you. But I, I would be careful about people pleasing over the sake of your health. Like you're prioritizing her feelings over your own health and you need to look after yourself and, you know, fuck everyone. Like who cares like what they think about what you're eating? You know, you got to look after yourself. Yeah. I love that. That's such great advice. I, we've talked about this before, but we just took a trip to South Carolina where we stayed with another family. We tried to prep them on what our diet was and how, you know, different and weird we are. And as my wife was getting pressed a little bit about what she was eating, she basically just said, look, like I'm visiting a dear friend. I haven't seen you in five years. I don't want to spend my time in the few days I get to have with you feeling terrible, feeling awful. 
uncomfortable, feeling like my stomach hurts and that my, my, I have brain fog and like my emotions up and down. I just want to be there and be present with you and, and really enjoy that. And to do that, I have to eat this way. And I thought that was a really great way to kind of say that, like, like why is, is it worth it to feel like shit on your birthday? Like that's a day you should feel great. You know, it's not worth it to have some of those, you know, cheats and, and that type of thing. So I really appreciate that. You have been a professional chef. What are some things that you would suggest for somebody that's just getting started on carnivore as far as tools in the kitchen? What are some of the top priorities that you found help keep this diet very simple for you? Um, I, I would suggest having like a cast iron pan. Um, if you don't want to be outside grilling, especially in the winter, um, I've only used cast iron for like 10 years now. It, I love it. I feel like it's the way to go. It's less toxic. Um, get some tallow to cook things in or butter. If you tolerate butter or ghee, um, an air fryer can be great. Um, that's a great option. I use our instant pot all the time. So you can make, you know, like a big roast and put it in there and then you could have that all week and, and rewarm that. Um, you can meal prep by like forming your own burger patties. I don't love reheated burger patties. So I'd rather just have, if I'm going to do it, like have the burgers all smashed and ready to go and cook them fresh that way. So you can meal prep that cold bacon is delicious. Make a batch of bacon, have some hard boiled eggs on hand. Um, have a bite of butter. If you like it, you might not get there quite yet. It might take a few months, but yeah, just keep it simple and, you know, cook up some meat if you want and have that ready, or maybe make it easy and just do some, like some prep work and do like all the cutting and slicing of whatever you're doing and have it ready to go. Um, another easy thing I have it somewhere on a reel I like to take like a big tri-tip that's about like that big and you cut it into chunks, probably like two inch chunks um, and then freeze them on a cookie sheet and then take it out. So that way, when you put them in a Ziploc, they don't stick together. And so you can throw in chunks of that or any other steak um, and cook it from frozen in the air fryer. So like two inch chunks of, um, of tri-tip would probably be like around 20 minutes in the air fryer from frozen. So that's easy. Like what's easier than throwing something in the freezer and having it done while you can do something else. You don't have to watch it in the air fryer. So yeah, just keep things simple. This clip is taken from episode 488 entitled Recapping a Low Carbohydrate Conference with returning guest Aranda Wickramasinghe. Um, there was a, a, a really cool debate that happened earlier this year that we've been looking forward to for a long time. And so Aranda is going to speak about that now. I have been looking forward to hearing about this. It was a debate. We can call it a debate. I've been looking forward yeah. to hearing about this debate for a very long time. I will maintain yeah. that people in the low carbohydrate and carnivore space have been wanting something like this for a long time. And we yeah. are not looking to be right about everything all the time. We no, just no. want to hear different opinions and have a discussion yeah. that is respectful and kind and like not turn into what happens on Twitter when people just revert to saying like you're stupid and insulting you yeah. it happens yeah. to me all the time. It blows my mind. So this debate yeah. was supposed to happen. I was looking forward to it. Um, I also just want to comment too, that I can say what I've noticed observationally is the same thing that you have been explaining. When you ask Ben Bickman, Sean Baker, Dr. Chafee, when you ask these people questions, they are really 
careful and meticulous about how they answer. And they will tell you when they don't know something or when something is observational or when something is yeah. speculation. They, they, yeah. they don't make crazy claims that are unsupported. And, and when they don't know, they will tell you they don't know. I really, really appreciate that scientific approach in that community. Yeah. That's what I've noticed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So 100% because they, so just to set up the, the panel discussion, because I, I would actually kind of try to more like an open and honest, um, respectful discussion rather than a debate. So what was so refreshing was there wasn't anything adversarial about it. Uh, so, so it was chaired by uh, Dr. Campbell Murdoch, uh, who's a general practitioner uh, working in the UK. So he introduced it as, uh, this is an open question. The question is, do we need to eat plants? And we're going to have an open discussion about uh, omnivore versus carnivore versus plant-based versus like, you know, vegan, all of these things we're going to talk about. And we're going to focus on talking about it from a health perspective. And we're not going to um, look at the environmental or ethical aspect of it, because we're going to cover that tomorrow in, well, the, the, later the same day on another panel discussion. And the title of that, which was chaired by Jane Buxton, the author of The Great Plant-Based Plant Con, which is an ama another amazing panel discussion, the, the title of that was <clears throat> Are Cows Killing the Planet? So just hold that thought, put a pin in that, hold that thought. So so the introduction was really good. So Dr. Campbell Murdoch said, I'm going to be really respectful of people's time. I'm going to make sure that everybody has equal time, regardless of you know where they're coming from. And then uh, he introduced each of the, the people who were on the panel. And there was Dr. Uh, Dr. Sean Baker, uh, who's obviously a carnivore and has been for seven years. Uh, then there was also Dr. Anthony Chaffee, who kind of dialed in from Australia, and he's very much a carnivore-based, kind of animal-based uh, advocate. There was Patrick Holford, uh, who's very much an omnivore, uh, with a special focus especially on on fish in terms of, I think he, he much prefers uh, fish as opposed to meat as a source of the animal-based nutrients. There was Dr. Haley Wood from Ireland, uh, who was a doctor, uh, plant-based or vegetarian. And then there was also Dr. Chidi, uh, who is a doctor practicing in the UK, uh, who specializes in working with patients with metabolic um, sort of problems, but trying to resolve those with a plant-based or vegan method. Uh, so that's kind of the setup for the actual discussion. And Dr. Chidi uh, went first. So he had about 10 minutes to talk about uh, reversing disease using uh, a kind of a, a plant-based or vegan method. Then uh, Patrick Holford spoke for, for, for about 10 minutes. Dr. Sean Baker spoke. Then, then Dr. Anthony Chaffee. Uh, then Dr. Dr. Haley. Uh, and everybody had equal time. And then... Uh, Dr. Campbell, Campbell Murdoch opened up the floor for people to have an open and honest discussion about their experience. And what was really refreshing was the fact that everybody got the time to speak. There was no interruptions. 
no uh, kind of like cutting people off or anything like that. Everything was so civilized. And you really got to hear uh, and you got to think about um, things in a non-emotional, rational way because of the way the, the conversation was structured. What really struck me was on the plant-based side, say, for example, Dr. Haley, uh, all of the arguments that she was making was from a very emotional perspective. Uh, she had this amazing story um, because she's been kind of plant-based or vegetarian, uh, I think, most of her life. And I think she was doing some work in Africa and she ended up adopting uh, a baby who was severely malnourished. And that became her daughter. And in the course of bringing up her adopted daughter, uh, she took a very much a plant-based approach. Uh, but she does include animal-based foods like eggs. And her, her daughter's resolved multiple health issues and is visibly thriving in that mode of eating. It, uh, this is omnivore, I must stress that, so it's not, not completely plant-based or vegan. Uh, and her argument was, um, I know this works for me, uh, so based on my experience, not on any other evidence, I'm going to try this with my daughter and see what happens. And thankfully, it worked out. She has a healthy daughter who's doing really well, who's really athletic, uh, who's doing gymnastics and all sorts. So um, so this is mostly plants, but including sort of things like cheese and eggs and some animal-based foods. So this is so, mostly is testimony. Great. This is like testimony. It's not necessarily like science. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she she didn't reference any, any study at all. So didn't reference a single study, but her experience is still valid because she actually saw that happening for herself and her child. So it's 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 an N equals two, yeah. but it's still valid. It's her experience. Great. Whereas talking to when uh, sort of Dr. Anthony Chaffee and Dr. Sean Baker were talking, they were much, much more evidence-based. And Dr. Anthony Chaffee especially um, cited so much evidence. Uh, and they took kind of... It wasn't based on anecdote. They were talking through clinical experience. And they really went into, uh, they were such good communicators in terms of like uh, Dr. Sean Baker, for example, was saying, you know, we, what's essential for life? So what's essential for life? Like, what are we actually made of? So may, we, physically, we are made of proteins, fat, and cholesterol mainly. And what gives our, our strength to our bones, it's the calcium, obviously, but there's also protein. So there's no structural part of the human body that's made of carbohydrates. And fiber is an anti-nutrient. Uh, again, it's not essential from a dietary perspective. And they went into kind of like um, the fact that, um, yes, fiber can be helpful in the context of a whole food diet if you can tolerate it. But is it optimal for health? 
is it optimal for health? So what do we actually need to be healthy? We need all of the essential uh, amino acids in a form that we can absorb because protein isn't just one thing. There's like 21 amino acids, nine of which are essential from a dietary perspective. Essential from a dietary perspective means that we have to eat it. Our body cannot synthesize it. And a lot of the other amino acids are conditionally uh, essential in terms of, um, yes, our body can synthesize them, but it can't, our bodies, bodies can't synthesize them in sufficient quantities for what we actually need. So we actually need to eat some of it as well. And if you want to build a human, um, animal-based foods are probably the best source because they've got the right mix of these amino acids in a form that we can easily absorb and incorporate into our into our healthy tissues. Uh, and you know they've got the the healthy fats, the natural healthy fats. Um, so we need protein and amino acids. We need uh, kind of healthy fats, including the essential. Fatty, fatty acids, especially omega threes, and certain amount, a small amount of omega six. We need minerals. We need vitamins, but carbohydrates and fiber are not essential uh, because carbohydrates, our bodies can create that on demand uh, through glu gluconeogenesis. Uh, that's not to say that. You know, all over the world, demonstrably, there are people eating whole food traditional diets, which can, which can be very high in carbohydrates, and they can still be quite healthy. Um, but are they eating the optimal diet for their health? Um, maybe not. Um, and what really came through, what everybody agreed on, from the plant-based side, omnivore side, and the carnivore side, what every single person on the panel agreed on was... Um, that ultra-processed foods are a problem. That whichever direction you're traveling in, you'll be much better off and much healthier if you focused on real whole foods. This clip is taken from episode 534, titled The Plant-Free MD, Dr. Anthony Chafee Returns Again. That was about the least creative uh, name of an episode I could come up with this year. So if you remember just the last clip that played, um, Randa mentioned um, Dr. Chafee as being a participant in this debate. And so in this clip, we do talk about that and what that experience was like. We also get into a little bit of something that we really went on the offensive about this year, which is the blue zones. Uh, Dr. Chafee um, responded to evidence that was, you know, talked about during this debate that referred to the China study and also to the Blue Zones. Blue Zones were made popular this year very much by a Netflix documentary called Live to 100, The Secrets of the Blue Zones. And I just can't get behind why they keep pushing a plant-based diet in areas of the world where people do not eat plant-based diets. And we've had that confirmed by several people now. And that led me to even create a composite episode similar to this one that was back on episode 537. Probably going to get sued for the title because it is very similar to the title of the Netflix documentary, which I did uh, deliberately, which was called Living to Age 100, The Truth About the Blue Zones. So yeah, a few little plays on word there, but we will talk about the Blue Zones in this episode. Really fascinating episode to go back and listen to uh, the full version, 537, and also this episode that was with Dr. Chafee back in episode 534. 
Which brings me to a debate that you did specifically. We did an episode with Aranda Wickramasinghe, um, who lives in the UK, who attended the conference that you were at, where we actually, I, I will say, ubiquitously across the board in the carnival world, this is the debate that we wanted to see. I heard it was really kind. Nobody fought. It wasn't, you know, rotten tomatoes at each other. Um, it was a really cool debate. And I, you were a part of it. I know you had to attend uh, virtually. You couldn't make it there in person, kind of a last minute thing. But I would love to hear your experience. What was that like? And w what were the arguments for a plant-based diet? And were they convincing at all? Oh, no, I, I thought it was very good. I mean, I think that's exactly, you're exactly right. I mean, we should be able to, to speak you know, cordially to each other. Um, that's not, that's not what a lot of, uh, these end up being, which is why there's, there's sort of no point in having them. Um, because it's just a waste of time, you know? Um, it's just, just people are being just rude and childish. And it's just like, well, why, why are we even doing this? Like, I don't, I have no interest in talking to someone if they're being, uh, childish about these things. And so this was nice. These, these people had, you know, mixed, mixed opinions. And uh, it was myself and Sean Baker leading up, you know, team, team meet and, and other people that were sort of in, in the spectrum of, uh, eating more plants to full on vegan vegetarian. Um, but everyone was, everyone was very good. We were able to, to, to go back and forth, you know, give our, give our spiel, make our case, and then sort of discuss the finer points of different things. Uh, it was a Dr. Chitty who um, made up the the main sort of vegan side of things. There's another gentleman who was I forget his name, but he was a he was a really interesting guy actually. I thought he had a lot of good points, but he wasn't like 100% vegan. He was just he was just saying there's probably benefits to eating plants. He's like, hey, there's there's good things here. Let's not let's not just throw them throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I, I you know I a lot of time for for that sort of discussion. You know, that's, that's totally, that's totally fair. Um, uh, Chitty, uh, you know, made some, some good points as well. I mean, he works in this in sort of a metabolic health practice and helps people and, and is getting people, you know, improving their health in a number of ways, but I didn't, I didn't find his, his arguments too compelling. One of his main pieces of evidence was, uh, talking about the China study, which I don't think is very, uh, compelling and, and has a lot of in it. And there are other people that have, you know, read the whole series of studies and China studies and things like that. Um, and actually sort of broken down the data and looked at it and actually found that they're, they're actually hiding things and, and, uh, and omitting major, major factors that, uh, really changed the story. And so, you know, people can look that up. It's sort of too long to get into, but, um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it justice, but you know, that was, that was, you know, it's like, it's like when someone comes and says, well, I mean, the blue zones, so therefore plant-based, you know, it, it was sort of that sort of thing. And it's just like, well, there are major problems with the blue zones. Um, you know, I just, just did a podcast with Bill Schindler and he was in the blue zones and he was studying these people and, and how they ate and how they lived. And they were nothing close to plant-based. <laughs> they were nearly entire, well, they were definitely meat-based, whole animal-based and they ate, he said that they were eating more meat than he did at home. And, and he's always been big into meat. And, um, and then after, you know, after a week there, they said, Hey, we're going to have meat tomorrow. And he was just like, what do you, what do you mean? We're gonna have meat tomorrow. We've been eating more meat than I, I, I eat at home. Like, what are you talking about? What they mean by that is that mean they were going to put a whole animal on a spit 
and, and spend the whole day barbecuing and hanging out as, as a, as a community. Wow. Right. So that's what they mean. So when they, when the blue zones say, well, in Sardinia, they only eat meat once a week. They know damn well that they're being misleading. That's a, that's a difference in language. It's semantics. They say, we only eat meat once a week. Well, they're saying you only eat meat once a week. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. We only eat meat once a week. That's what they call that. Right. So it's, a, it's a, it's a confusion in the language and it's, and it's a purposeful, um, it's purposefully done by the people doing the blue zones because they, they know damn well that that's not the case, that that's not what they mean by that, that they predominantly eat meat. And, uh, and once a week they eat a lot of meat. Right. And so, and these people are extremely healthy. And there are a lot of other factors in that. A lot of other factors, you know, have a strong tight knit community. People keep working. They have a goal. They have a purpose in life to keep them going. They're walking up and down a bunch of hills, going to their pastures, going to their herds, going to their animals, to tend them every single day and playing with their grandkids and their great grandkids and telling stories and, you know, doing, doing different activities and staying active and being busy and, and enjoying their life. A lot of beneficial things, but being plant-based is not one of them. Right. So, you know, that was, a, that was a major argument was, was uh, the China study. Uh, sort of thing and going to Loma Linda and seeing these people that were a hundred and, you know, very healthy. And it's just like, well, that's great. You know, but um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of issues with the Loma Linda um, crowd as well. And the Adventist studies are, are pretty biased, yep. very biased yep. as well. So, um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it wasn't anything that I saw any new arguments that I was just like, Oh, okay, well that that's, that's interesting. I'll have to look into that. And, you know, maybe that sort of shakes things around. It was, it was just sort of things I'd seen before. And I was like, mm, no, you know, we have, we have answers for these. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I heard from Aranda and I would have expected this to begin with that on the carnivore side, the arguments were very careful and logical and had proof and backing behind them. And the arguments for plant-based was more emotional. And this really helped my daughter heal this one thing mm -hmm. and it's great. And, and I'm so grateful for this and that that's fine, but it's, it's different than facts. I, it's, it's ironic too, because just this week we got a comment on a video that you and I did together where the, the person making the comment said, well, isn't it funny that every study says that eating more plants makes you live longer. And I'm like, I responded. I said, that's, that's cool. Like send me your favorite one. I'm actually talking to Dr. Anthony Chafee this week. So I'll, I'll just bring it up with him. Like just send me whatever mm -hmm. your favorite one is. If all studies say it, it should be very easy to just come up with, you know, the best one that you like mm -hmm. and crickets. Like I didn't get any, I don't have any to discuss with you today because there was absolutely nothing. And I told him the same thing. Like if you're, if you're basing your, you know, knowledge of longevity on this new Netflix documentary called live to 100. That's all about the blue zones and Dan Butner and all of this stuff that's already owned by the, the seven day Adventist. If you're basing mm -hmm. your knowledge on that, there's a lot of gaps and we're doing a very specific episode on that coming up soon because it's, it's trending on Netflix. It's a top 10 show on Netflix. That's highlighting the benefits of the blue zones. And it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Because, because Dan Butner pushed a plant-based agenda. And, and so, you know, and I, I was actually uh, on that, on the comment, comment thread on the Bill Schindler uh, blue zone thing that I just put out. Um, there was a lady from Okinawa who just said, Hey, this is blue zones are crap. So I, I live in Okinawa. I grew up in Okinawa. My grandparents are a hundred and, uh, and they're very healthy. They mostly eat meat. They eat like 80% meat, 90% meat. And a lot of beef, a lot of pork, 
and chicken and fish. And yes, they eat they eat plants, but they they don't they don't eat much. It's the majority of what they eat is meat, and the majority of what I eat is meat, and what my family eats are meat, and what all the traditionally uh, long living and, and the traditional diet of the Okinawans is a lot of meat. It's very meat heavy. So this is not true. And I, I know this. I grew up with this. And, um, you know, a lot of people were very interested in asking different questions. And then, the, you know, you had the sort of the, you know, the, the obligatory vegan trolls that, that tried to ignore everything she said and just say, well, yeah, but that's not carnivore. That's not hundred percent carnivore. So, I mean, what the hell is this all about? Like no one's saying it is no one's saying it has to be. The point is, is that it's not plant-based. And so saying that the blue zones are so great because plant-based like that's, that's not true. And so, you know, it's just, it's just showing the actual facts of the matter and also showing that no, like eating more meat doesn't make you die young, right? That, that these people are predominantly eating meat. And if we're very convinced by their longevity and we're impressed by that, well, and we're, and we're going to look at their diet, um, you know, as something that we should model, well, it's, it's meat-based, it's mostly meat. And, you know, the definition of a hypercarnivore is someone who gets over 70% of their calories from meat. So they're hypercarnivore, right? And so that's actually, you know, uh, pretty telling. But, you know, they wanted to ignore all that sort of stuff. But that's the thing is that um, the the blue zones were completely mis- misleading. And, um, you know, one thing that they did, the blue zone that they, they didn't mentioned a Hong Kong that has the highest life expectancy on earth. It's most more meat per capita than any other, you know, modern population. That's right. And, uh, and the, um, you know, the, the Adventists, now they say, well, they have a lot of centenarians as well. And they're all plant-based. I know a lot of seven day Adventists and they say, no, that's not true. That's certainly what is pitched and what you you're supposed to eat is a lot of plant-based, but he said that it was probably about 5% of people actually adhere to that. Everyone else just eats normally, you know, yep. uh, but what they do, uh, also, um, you know, encourage and, and impress upon their members is live a clean life. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't have caffeine, don't have nicotine. Um, you know, um, have, you know, have, you know, get married, have kids, don't have, uh, you know, a, a, this sort of thrill seeking life. And, um, you know, so that's a, that's again, a healthy user bias as a, as a population and another population that they fail to recognize as a blue zone are the American Mormons who sort of adhere to similar, um, restrictions as far as lifestyle is concerned, but don't have the nutritional restrictions that not even a lot of Seventh-day Adventists even adhere to. And, uh, they have the exact same life expectancy as, as the Adventists. It's exactly the same as well as last time I checked it was, but it's, you know, if it's not the same, it's very close. And so, you know, they, they omit these sorts of things. And then what Dan Butner did was he actually sold the rights to calling things blue zones to the seven day Adventists for tens of dollars. And uh, now you have areas applying to be a blue zone say, Hey, look, we have all these centenarians we have all these people that are living a long time we want to be a blue zone and uh and they have to apply to the seventh day adventist church and pay them a bunch of money and then they decide hmm, no we don't like the look of that you're not you don't get the stamp right so this is this is a political thing now you know this is like you get stamped as a blue zone it's only the people that that they want they can maybe i, I mean i don't know but you know they could easily 
manipulate that. It's like, no, no, no. Like this is a cattle, cattle country. Just, we all just eat like, you know, a bunch of meat and steaks and everyone's living to be 110. Like, absolutely not. No, you know, <laughs> we're not giving you a blue zone. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe they'll, they'll be honest about it, but I have, uh, you know, no, you know, no impression that they will, uh, based on, on previous behavior that they've done. Yeah. Fort Worth, Texas is one of those cities. I think they pay $6 million to the blue zone project to be accredited. Fort Worth, Texas is not a blue zone. I'm sorry. It's just not. (laughs) Next, we're going to go to episode 538, which was titled unlocking metabolic health with ketogenic diets. Nicole Laurent returns. Um, Again, talking a little bit more about ketogenic diets, but very much related to carnivore diets. And I believe this was the diet that this family had gone through. I thought this story was absolutely wonderful. And this is how we're going to conclude the last few clips that we go to. It's going to be more of the personal stories out there. Uh, We love Nicole on this show. She's been on four times now. She always learns something amazing from her. Please follow her online. Um, You can find her on Twitter. Just search her name. You'll be able to find her. Um, She's also on Instagram at Mental Health Keto. Her Twitter handle is Keto Counselor. She's wonderful and puts out lots of wonderful content. So I hope you enjoy this awesome story. Well, I love the um, the case studies, right? Like we, you and I have talked and, you know, we're not going to get tons of clinical controlled trials exploring this stuff. There's not money in ketogenic research, but we do have tons of case studies. And you've worked with people in different capacities for years and years and years. What are some of your favorite case studies, some favorite results? They could be more recent. They could be ones that really, really stood out to you. Just some of the ones that, that first come to mind when I ask you the question. Well, I... I just had two recent, like yesterday, I had two people who I think are in remission or on their way to remission. So, um, and, and one of them, I, you know, I, I never share case studies or stories unless I get their permission to talk about them because that's awful. You know, your therapist is telling your story and even though they're not telling your name, it still feels very intrusive. So you can't do that. So I was checking in with her to see if it was okay if I talked about her on, because I knew I was meeting with you and she said, yes. And she was very excited about that. And she wanted to know what podcast, because I think she's going to listen. But um, yeah, so this is a, this was a 19 year old girl uh, with diagnosis undetermined, but had auditory and visual hallucinations. So um, they were figuring out diagnosis, I think still. So, uh, schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder type of diagnosis. And I got to meet her. So her, her dad is a carnivore already. And he was, uh, knowing that this would likely be helpful for her. And she had been in conventional psychiatric treatment and, you know, 19, someone, someone has their has their own, um, their own mind. Is she 19? She might be 17. Wow. I think she's 17. I'm sorry. She's 17. Yes. Cause I couldn't put her in my online program. So we're doing, <laughs> sorry. So she's 17. Um, and she's still in school. So, um, so they met with me and she was in a really bad place. She was highly suicidal and her dad was on the call with her. And she was trying to decide, you know, what way to go. So she's just in a really bad place. And, um, and I said, so here's, here's where, here's where you are. And you are about to go into, you want to go into a psychiatric hospital. And I understand that. And let me tell you where that leads. 
where that goes. And, and it's possible that you could be stabilized and stay on the same medications for a lifetime or, or close to it. Although that's unusual, that's possible though. And, um, and that could be your, your way to feel better. I don't think you're going to like psychiatric hospital. It's not a fun place. It's not, it's not a, you know, it's not a great place for a lot of people, you know, that you don't get a lot of freedom. I don't know if for, for listeners who have been in a psychiatric hospital, you know, for stabilization, they know what I'm talking about. It's not, it's not a happy place for them. Um, and, and, or we can try this treatment. This treatment is here. Uh, this is what it looks like. This is kind of what the meals, this is, this is expectations probably take three to four months, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and there's big adjustments that kind of go with that. And I could see on the call that she was just kind of shutting down because it's a, when you're already in a mentally bad place, making some big decision about your treatment is just hard. And then she's got her dad yammering at her, right? You need to try this thing, you know, although he was really great a parent, right? He's, he wants what's best for her. He wants her to feel better. He doesn't really care how, but he, so he suspected. And, um, and I said, here's the thing. You can't make a wrong decision right now. There's no, this is not a life or death decision for you. This, we got to keep you safe. That's what comes first. You do what you feel like you need to do to be safe and to stay safe. And if at any time you don't like the path you are on, I am here and you can contact me. You can always take this path. And if you can't find me, 20 years from now and you decide you want to do this, then you'll find someone else. There's, there's lots of us out there. You can't make a wrong decision today. And I could see that that kind of, she relaxed a little bit in that. And, uh, I would say not even a week later, her dad contacted me and said that she would like to meet with me. And so we started treatment and we started, um, with ketogenic metabolic therapy, ketogenic diet. And we started, uh, just re- Reducing, having her track, beginning to reduce carbohydrates little by little, talking about how you got to start to get rid of the Chick-fil-A, even though it's like a low, they got the low carb option. It's not, you know, so, so we started doing that work and she started to actually improve before I got her down on, down very much on therapeutic carbohydrate restriction. Um, She's, she'd come in and she'd say, you know, I didn't have a visual hallucination today. And I was like, good, good. Let's keep going. And so she, you know, she, she's doing great. Um, so I saw her, I went, I traveled to San Diego. I didn't get to see her. I I saw her twice a week, uh, for a little while there. And I think that extra support in the beginning is really important. I'm not sure once a week is enough. I almost feel like we should break it up into two, two a week, uh, for people trying to do it for mental illness. But she, uh, so I missed her for a whole week and I was like, okay, well, let's see how she's doing. And she was all smiles. Um, she was great. She's had no visual or auditory hallucinations and she, you know, we'd put her on pretty strict macros, you know, uh, I believe we're at her on a 2.5 to three type of macro adjustment uh, ratio. And she, you know, she kind of is naturally, she's almost doing a modified Atkins and she's doing ketones of two, two, three, 2.5, three. She's just kind of living in that area. And we just had to really increase her fat. 
but she's doing fantastic. We move, we move to once a week because, uh, you know, we just want to kind of stay in touch, but she really wanted you to know that this was, was a miracle, her words, a miracle and life-changing for her. Um, and she was excited that I tell her story on this podcast and I'm assuming other places, um, because because this has been such a, a big thing for her. So she was all smiles. She wasn't overwhelmed. I didn't even do therapy with her. She had a therapist when she came that she was already working with. So, and her prescriber is being very uh, cooperative and is very excited about the changes um, and is adjusting medication accordingly. So she started to improve very, very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> it's borderline difficult to not get emotional over that. That is... Absolutely amazing. Okay, perfect example then. 17 years old. I remember what my brain was like at 17. I didn't have schizophrenia, but my brain was not fully developed. Let me just tell you. Um, mm -hmm. Around friends, in school, this is about the time that your parents are idiots and they don't know anything about anything. This yeah. is about the what I would consider some of the least compliant populations you could ever find. And she has found a way to do it. She is compliant and sees the benefit has it been extremely challenging for her. Well, she's got, yep. She's got family support. She really has that family support. So her mom, uh, when I look at her chronometer and I look at her food, her mom is always making these amazing dishes that are ketogenic. The whole, this mom and dad feeds the whole family keto for, for the most part, uh, I believe. And, um, they just have that, they have that support. So I think that for young and old populations, having that support in your family makes it exponentially easier. This is a family that's like, we're going to do what it takes. Tell us what to do. And they, and there was nothing I told them to do that they didn't like, okay, we can do this. We can figure out a way to make this happen. Um, and, and so that was a very, you know, that was a, a great, you know, functioning family that way. Um, and, but not everybody has a family like that and they still need that extra support to get, to get that going. And, um, and there's lots of psychological variables that are a part of that, but when you are miserable enough, you really will do what it takes if you believe that it's possible. The next clip is taken from episode 423, titled The Recovering Vegan and Current Carnivore, Giselle Bisson. Um, really fascinating story that she has as well, coming back from veganism and now embracing a carnivore diet. And all the crap she's taken on social media has been pretty astounding. But she has recovered her health to some extent and feels amazing on a carnivore diet. So we're going to include her story here as well. I, it's so interesting now that I've coached so many people through the carnivore diet, there is a, a definite progression there. I can't stand to look at meat. I don't like meat. I don't want to touch it. Okay, my health is tanking. My brain isn't working. So maybe I'll have a little nibble of an egg. Maybe I'll have a bit of chicken. I can do a little bit of fish. Things are getting a little better. Red meat is still a absolutely repulsive. I don't want to look at red meat. It's gross. Let me try a little okay, let me try a little, okay, let me try a little. And ev the taste for everything else seems to just drop right off a cliff. And it's like red meat is exactly what you needed. Your body starts, it's intuitive eating. Your body starts telling you what it wants. Yep. And if you listen to your body and really tune in uh, and listen to how you feel after you eat something, like a, 
I was visiting one of my vegan friends and he made me this coconut milk, turmeric, chai stuff with all of his little superfoods in it. And he was really proud of it. And he really wanted me to drink it. And I had some just to humor him, but I knew that my intestines were going to start churning. And that is the only time in the last 50 days that I've felt indigestion is when I eat these spices, restaurant food, um, anything with a barcode on it. You know, whenever uh, shrimp, um, the shrimp scampi that's pre-made, anything pre-made, uh, anything packaged. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's really the the most restrictive diet imaginable, but it's also very pure. Yep. It's it de- purer than what we thought was pure as vegans. That's right. And, and it depends on how you look at restrictive. It is restrictive in the sense that you're not eating many foods, but it's completely unrestrictive for how much you can have and the boundless amounts mm-hmm. of energy that you can have on the back end. That's unrestrictive. Boundless energy when you're awake, but then as soon as you go to sleep, boom, out like a light. Yep. Get way more efficient sleep. So I find I wake up way earlier and and I'm almost like in a panic, like, I think I should go back to sleep, but my energy's good. I never feel tired during the day. I don't need a nap. I'm just like, okay, I got all the sleep I needed. Now I can go be productive. I can go do something. It's great. It's it's like being on a I describe it as sort of like being on a limitless drug. It's awesome. I know. That's a great way to describe it. That's a great way to describe it. Okay, so World Carnivore Month ends end of January. And I want to say, I don't know if you tweeted something. I, I think I just asked you. I, I maybe just DM'd you and said like, hey, what, what are you going to do? I'm just curious, honest question. Like, do you think you're going to continue with the carnivore diet? And and maybe you, you tweeted about it or something, but I remember the tweet the next day that said, February 1, I... I I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah. Why did you decide that you wanted to continue doing carnivore? Because I think I ate something that wasn't carnivore. Yep. And I felt lousy again. And I had an IBS flare. And I realized, wow, it's it's just not a coincidence. Uh, this is not all in my head. When I eat spices, pepper, garlic, um, any kind of sauces, anything that has uh, seed oil or canola oil in it, um, anything from a package, <laughs> I I go back to feeling terrible again. Yeah. The all over body pain, the flares, the joint pain, trouble walking. It's like I describe it as sort of like Cinderella and the pumpkin. You know, so you just, oh, you're feeling great as a carnivore. And then you go back to eating, quote, normal food. And all of a sudden you feel like crap again. It's like the coach turns into a pumpkin almost immediately. It's not a gradual process. It's like, damn, like party's over. You feel like awful, yeah, right? Terrible. And that's why I think of the carnivore diet is so self-selecting and actually don't mind when my clients go cheat because they will pay the price for sure and learn the lesson. And so I don't care where you are on the journey. You will naturally find your perfect food. You'll feel really good on it. I loved your your tweet the next day that said you're going to keep going. I contrast that with, um, uh, I think it was Facebook. Somebody in my neighborhood posted uh, day 31, it, it, January 31st. I just finished Veganuary, which I don't know who was first, World Carnivore Month or Veganuary. And she well, was like, 
maybe. <laughs> but she was like, I, I'm so sick of veganism. I like, where's the best barbecue joint? <laughs> I, <laughs> right. Good for her. Oh yeah. And I wanted to post the two as a contrast. One person just finished vegan veganuary and can't wait to get off of it. One person just finished the carnivore diet and can't wait to stay on it. It's so different. It's so different to contrast the two of those. I thought that was great. Well, I suffered for so long and I feel like I lost a good, you know, two decades of my life, really lost it. I lost, and to be super blunt, I lost my fertility as a vegetarian and later as a vegan, I lost my chance to have a baby. I miscarried and miscarried and miscarried. And this is another thing that you'll hear over and over again from vegan women. And uh, I lost my beauty during the prime of my life. I lost my skin during the prime of my life. I lost my ability to walk. And I lost my best friends. How much loss can you suffer? I lost my brain function. You know, I became so absent-minded and and unable to really focus that I couldn't function in my career anymore. And part of that was the injury that I suffered, but part of it was the malnutrition. I now have learned through the extensive research and following all these wonderful experts in social media and Twitter that vitamin B12 is not just a pill. It's not just a a minor thing. It's very, 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 very important nutrient, very essential nutrient. And it's only in animal foods. Um, Another big wake-up call was learning that it's not just vitamin B12 that you can only get from animals. There are 20 essential nutrients only found in the animal kingdom. The next clip is taken from episode 450, titled From Keto to Carnivore with Olivia Quadja. Olivia is somebody who we have hosted on the show several times. We were both attending Low Carb Denver, and she was one of the ones that we included in the composite episode we made with the stories of the attendees of Low Carb Denver, which was back on episode 424, like we said earlier. I also re-released it on Christmas, so that was earlier this week, if you are caught up. That was episode 567. So It's just so interesting to think that we were attending the same conference. She was one that signed up for a 10 minute interview to be included in that discussion. And otherwise we probably would never have met. I would have no reason to have met her any other way. So really cool that um, she was able to appear in this episode, which again, 450. We also made another episode featuring her as the host of Dr. Anthony Chafee's book club, which is amazing. I belong to it. I really, really enjoy it, even though I can't make it every single week. And we actually had the idea to have some of the other members of the book club come in and have discussions with us, which was really unique. I had a great time on that episode. But again, this one's taken from episode 450 with Olivia. Your kids are adorable. That page is amazing. We might not even talk about you in this episode. We might just talk about your kiddos. <laughs> Got the wrong people on then. I should have brought someone else. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, that's great. They'd love to hear that. They're very passionate about, about food and nutrition. And yeah, and they're quite cute with it as well. So it works. <laughs> oh, the, the videos were amazing. I, I think it was Bailey who did one about some beef jerky that he made. I guess he was going away to uh, Wales for the day or something. Is that like a field trip? He was, he was going for like, I think five, six days. I mean, oh, okay. it was a few days. 
So wow. we, we yeah, well, that was a bit of a challenging, interesting situation as to how we manage this food. Uh, so we just basically set up with tons of jerky because they were staying somewhere where they didn't have great access to food. So, um, or our kind of food, should we say? So yeah, he was he was involved in the process of making his own food for that week. That's amazing. I love the way he held up the plate. He showed the beef jerky, showed how it was different, how he made it himself. He was so proud. He thanked Dr. Chafee for like teaching him how to do it. And he always ends his videos by waving and saying, bye. Like so cool. (laughs) So cool. Get to see his breakfast options. He was making waffles with eggs and bacon and sausage. Was it difficult for them to go through some type of transition where they were eating more animal products or in a more, more like carnivorous way? Uh, I Not necessarily eating more animal products because they already ate animal products. And um, and actually for them, it was the biggest thing for them to move away from has been sugar and grains. So, you know, a good year and a half ago, they would have been eating a very classic big bowl of cereal, not the best cereal um, breakfast like most kids do, or they'd be having, you know, kind of toast and jam, that kind of stuff. And um, and and obviously as kids and the exposure that they have to to sugar, especially in schools and you know someone's birthday parties and all of that kind of stuff, that's really been the hardest thing I think as kids for them to not consume as much of. And my daughter, in fact, doesn't have any at all. Um, and Bailey's now just really fruit now and again. So so that's been the hardest thing. And I think you know can, just eating meat has not been hard because that's what they loved anyway. And 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 certainly moving or shifting down the amount of vegetables that they're eating, that was not a problem. They love that part of it. <laughs> um, so as soon as we started to eat in a more kind of carnival way, we thought we'd leave them to just carry on on keto. And they were like, nope, you're having steak and no broccoli. We're not having the broccoli either. So it's all, it's all, it's all been pretty good. But yeah, I think sugar and grain is always the hardest for kids because it's just around them everywhere. Yeah. I think if I was that age and I told my mom that I wasn't going to have any broccoli, I would probably still be grounded to this day. I'd still be in trouble. <laughs> so th- that it, it's so interesting. You talk about the schools and sports programs and the birthday parties. Like you hear from parents like, yes, I understand that sugar is a problem. I would love for them to not consume as much sugar. It's just impossible. I just can't do it because they're going to go to the birthday problems. And it seems like you guys have kind of figured it out. I know. And I don't, I mean, I think a part of it is, I mean, there's definitely luck is somewhere in there because, you know, we've, we've given them information and, you know, I'm a real believer that, you know, by te- if I was to tell them you are not allowed to eat sugar ever, then we wouldn't have this kind of result. So I've just imparted information and they've seen some of the results of me and my husband. Um, and they really wanted to, to, I think, uh, you know, the more meat they ate, I think also they didn't need it as much. So they kind of realized that, they're, they're kind of satiated and you don't have that kind of snacking urge that definitely helps along the way and I also think that just you know I think the hardest thing was for my daughter as a teenager at school bringing in food products that were not really seen as kind of normal and not being able to fit in with everyone in that kind of way that's that's a lot of pressure and she's but she's taken that in her stride and she's been pretty happy you know, defending herself and her position, herself and her position. And, and sugar, she admits is really hard thing to not have, you know, especially when in cooking class, they're making, you know, pies and, you know, donuts, and that's what they make. And, and it really does mean she has to, you know, she, for a while, she had to, to not cook some of the things or find different ingredients and 
find her way around it. And then, or if she had to make it, then she'd make it, but not eat it. And that was really hard for her. And I did get a you know a phone call one day where she said, mommy, I ate a cookie at school. And I said, look, it's fine. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, but I ate a whole cookie. I said, look, it's, it doesn't matter. Just drink some water. You'll be fine. So they've had, they've fallen off a few times, but they're so much more conscious of it than they ever would have been before that. I just think whatever's happened, whatever happens, we're, we're in a better situation than we ever would have been. Yeah, that's fantastic. I promise, Olivia, I promise I've got questions for you. We're going to talk about your story. I just have one more question about the kids. What, I'm what a it, mom. I'm happy to talk about my kids as you much should. as they, they're, they're beautiful kids. They're very cute. Like I said, there's something different. You see it in people that eat this way. They have bright eyes, a sparkling countenance. It's hard to like really specifically describe, but you can see it. And once you've seen it in enough people, just like the conference we were at, you see it with pretty much everybody who's there. You start to recognize it. And these kids have it. And so I was going to ask, how how has how eating this way affected their schoolwork? And how has it affected things like sports performance? When they're, you know, playing sports with the other kids who are eating a completely diametrically opposed, you know, diet, do you notice a vast difference in how your kids are performing? Yeah, absolutely. And particularly my daughter, who's, you know, kind of gone through a few years of eating the wrong thing and maybe seeing a step back in her sports performance because she was always naturally very sporty, but then went through a period of maybe carrying a bit of excess weight and um and not 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 having the results she used to have. And so she's kind of going through that puberty stage where she's not finding it as easy. My son is still pretty sporty and runs around no matter what. Um, but yeah, she's she's managed to really turn around her sports performance so she plays a sport called netball always to a really good level but in the last year her her standard has really shot up and she's getting constant feedback from her her, her coaches saying Eden you're just playing amazing right now like what has happened to you and she's like oh thank you and you know she had sports day last year and for years she had not bothered to participate in kind of the running races because she didn't think she could do it and then she got pulled into a few just because there was no one else. And then she ended up winning them. And she's like, what's going on? I could, I just felt like I could just run mummy. I just didn't feel any, anything stopping me. I just wanted to run faster. So, you know, that's, that's just, you know, so revelationary, I think for a child to, to experience that as well. And, and to take that on board herself. And I think in terms of academics, she has, she says she has really felt a difference in terms of her alertness, her ability to participate in her schoolwork and, and do really well. And we had a parent teacher meeting about a month or two ago and they were just saying, wow, she's really improved. She's really like up there and alert and, and, and engaged with everything and getting it and getting it the first time. And, you know, she's always pretty bright, but now she just feels like she's, she's got a, you know, a new thrust in her, you know, it's, it's really exciting. I think for her, who was going through puberty and struggling with it and her skin and her face and all of this kind of stuff, which again, means a lot to these kids at this age, you know, that's all in, in a much more you know positive place than how she likes it. So, you know, once they see the benefits, I think you, there's a lot less I have to do. Like I've done, I've, I've laid the seed and sown the seed rather, and, and she's reaping all the benefits. So I'll just leave her to it. And if she falls off again, that's totally fine. I'm not here to kind of pressure her. Cause I think that would be the wrong thing. Yeah. Well, kudos to them. Kudos to Bailey and Eden. Yeah. I can tell you and your husband, what's your husband's name? Greg. Greg. I can tell you and Greg do not force anything. There's a picture of what looks like a small cannon of whipped cream that you guys could have <laughs> yeah. for dessert with, uh, you know, berries or whatever you guys have on hand. But I just, I, yeah. it's a wonderful example. Again, for all the people out there that tell me it is impossible to raise kids on a proper way of eating, you guys have figured that out. And now it's like 
propelling itself where you don't have to do much, I think is a wonderful example. So kudos to all of you. It's so cool to see. What other things physically, mentally, emotionally, did you find very beneficial switching already from a low carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet over to carnivore? Oh, that's, that's a, a good list. I think, <laughs> um, lots of different things, lots of little things actually, but the first noticeable thing for me was my sports performance. Cause I work out every day and I noticed my cycling time. So I go on a virtual bike, what bike and climb a mountain every day in the morning fasted. And I normally do a particular mountain at a particular time. And then suddenly one day, about two weeks into carnivore, that time halved. And I was like, what has happened to my bike? Something has gone wrong. I've obviously misput the wrong um, ride in or something, but I hadn't. And that was really shocking to me. And, and, And lots of other things from a sports point of view. So I found that I didn't need to stretch anymore. Um, I was building muscle very easily. I went skiing. We normally ski once a year and I've never been an amazing skier, but suddenly I turned into some kind of ski queen. I was just like speeding down the mountain with all the best skiers and like, what's going on here? I don't know how to control myself. Um, and never getting like doms and muscle soreness from skiing, which normally sets in pretty quickly for me. So I noticed a lot of that. Um, and running as well. I normally run quite a lot and I've noticed my running time went down. So something felt fundamentally different And this is even just above keto. So as, as you said, it's, it's, um, there are some improvements that come even from that stage. Um, so that was athletic performance. And then I noticed lots of things in my body changing. So I noticed my eyes got whiter. I noticed my teeth got whiter. Um, I noticed that I was, um, <clears throat> my tummy got flatter my skin got better. A lot of people said it was, I looked younger and didn't had, I had work done. Um, I noticed that, um, uh, my hair was a lot thicker. Um, I did lose some hair as well and went through a whole kind of period of losing hair and then it regrowing, but I had that on keto as well. So I think anytime you change your diet, that tends to happen. I didn't associate it with carnival particularly. Um, but yeah, my skin was a lot better. And even the skin on my feet, which I used to scrub with a pumice stone. I don't know if other people do that or not, but we've always seemed to have done it. Um, I've stopped doing that because there's nothing to scrub off anymore. There's, I know I don't even moisturize them. Um, and I had this weird thing on my toe, my toenail, because I used to run a lot. I always got toenail fungus, which sounds a bit gross. I'm sorry. Um, but because your, your feet are, are trapped in a, in a moist space every day, they tend to come back and you can never get rid of these damn things. And I tried for years, I must've tried for 15 years to get rid of this toenail fungus and it never went away. And I spent hundreds of pounds buying all kinds of products that were supposed to, were supposed to get rid of it. And it, it, I just gave up. It was, no, it was, nowhere, it was going nowhere. And then, um, yeah, a couple of months into carnival, I remember looking at my toes and just like my jaw dropped because it was gone. It was just disappeared. Like not even the regrowth, the whole thing that was already there was gone. That really blew my mind. Um, but I think the thing that, that really got me was when I woke up one day and it was like a, a Wednesday or something. And I just felt mentally different and I hadn't had a mental issue before. So, you know, I'd had downtimes, but nothing you know, that, that kind of chronic or anything like that. 
And I just woke up feeling like I was on top of the world and I loved life. And it was, you know, Christmas day or, you know, I couldn't work out why I felt so happy. And I was thinking I must have, you know, when you go to sleep and you wake up in the morning and you have forgotten something that you you almost like couldn't remember where you are. And I thought I must have forgotten something really great that happened the last few days. And it's made me feel happy, but I can't remember what it is. And there just wasn't anything. I was just happy for the sake of being happy, you know, and that, that was really, really quite enlightening because I just thought there is something at a cellular level that has changed in my body. I'm noticing so many little tiny things that, and maybe to other people, they don't sound that significant, but when it's your own body and you've lived with it for that many years, it you feel it. Like you just lie in bed and you're touching your own skin going, God, it feels so soft. What's happened to it? Like what has happened to me? And then you start to think, well, what was I putting my body through before all those years, you know, decades of, of not being optimal that's really bad I really wish I'd figure this out sooner but you know I I just hope people I just hope people hear these messages and take that on because I know for carnivore in particular a lot of people don't consider it until they're in a really dire backed into a corner situation they've tried everything else and then someone mentions carnivore and it's normally kind of gut issues or autoimmune issues and things like that so I feel quite quite unique in the sense that I haven't met many people who've come to carnivore just doing it on a whim and and yeah I've still had all these benefits so you know I think it's that that tells that tells a bit of a story in itself like I think everyone has something to gain yeah by eating this way um whether they feel they've got something to gain or not because you just don't know what you don't know yeah. I, I love all of that. That is so consistent with what I hear from other carnivore stories out there. I certainly experience the same thing. And my favorite sign to point out to somebody that they're on the right track is exactly that. There is going to be a day in a few weeks after transitioning, maybe days, but there will be a day where for there's no reason that you should feel so great. And you'll just feel joy. You'll just, for no reason, like a bird will will look amazing or like the sky will just be <laughs> fabulous. And you can't explain it, but it's like, you'll, you'll like smile to yourself for no reason. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's surreal. It's like a cloud has lifted that you never knew was there. That's so right. it's, yeah, yeah amazing. Oh, that's amazing. The final clip we will be listening to is taken from episode 556, titled Melissa Lujan's Incredible Story of Healing Dementia with Hal Kramner and Eric Collette. Uh, Eric Collette was featured on a show, the episode right before this one, so that was episode 555. Hal Kramner was hosted on 415 and 545, so two episodes this last year. I have saved my absolute favorite story of the year for the very last clip that we're going to listen to today. I highly encourage each of you to not only listen to this clip, but also go back and check out those other episodes that we did. Um, They're also related to the episode we referred to earlier with Daniel Magnar and the episode that we did with Julie Sipes, who is staying at Hal Kramner's facility until she lost a ton of weight and was able to leave. This woman had a pretty moderate to severe case of dementia and entered Hal Kramner's home um, in search of answers. Hal has discovered that in his assisted living facilities, people who are consuming low carbohydrate and carnivore diets are doing really, really well and actually healing herself. And that is exactly what happened to Melissa. Her story is so inspirational. I absolutely love this. I have very nearly gotten emotional several times interviewing Hal and some of his guests. And so I really hope you enjoyed this one. Again, episode 556 with Melissa Lujan. 
Melissa, question for you. When you came to Hal for the first time, you said that, uh, or Hal told us that you were willing to do anything that they said. What? Why were you so motivated and what were your expectations? Like, didn't you just think you were going into assisted living and that's kind of where the beginning of the end was going to start? Or did you have other expectations of, of, of you know, maybe leaving at some point? Well, that's where Hal Cramner's homes are so different. Uh, from the get-go, it was understood this was a temporary thing. Um, I decided uh, there were those, uh, those several years of just eating the wrong thing, going against everything I knew. Um, and I realized this is my, this is my chance. This I just knew that this was going to be, I keep calling it, and it is my miracle. Um, and that is why when uh, first conversations weekly with Hal and then Matt or Eric, uh, I agreed to do all those things, including the cold shower after the sauna, which I regret now. Um, the others in the home where I stayed used to laugh because of course I scream, right? <laughs> but um, it's been a joke and I've done, like I said, I, I knew if I'm going to do this, I'm committing completely and did everything. And, I, I think that was a big positive was, you know, I have a lot of people move into my assisted living homes. And the first thing they say is, I don't want to be here. I want to go home. Why can't I live at home? Um, and, and one of the things we do with people who have dementia, who aren't as motivated as Melissa. We say, you know, if you get better, we'll send you home. Because we've done that with some people. So you work really hard. This is just a temporary thing. And that kind of calms them down a little. And we use that as, you know, let's get you into a routine. And then you kind of get used to the place and you lose your um, anger about being there. With Melissa, it was right from the start of she told us this is going to be a temporary thing. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to get better. I'm going to go home, um, which wasn't a, I don't want to be here. I want to go home, which is really not a, I don't want to do any work. I just want you to send me home. Um, hers was, I'm going to do whatever it takes to go home. And, and the difference between those two attitudes is just enormous. And I think she never thought ever this is going to be my assisted living home for the rest of my life. This is going to be a temporary thing that gets me better and I'm going home. And I don't think you ever lost, no matter what your memory is going on, I don't think you ever lost that thought in your head right from the day you walked into the, our home. Right. I simply closed my apartment down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you didn't, didn't like terminate the lease or anything. You, you're like, <laughs> I'm coming back to it. I just left it. And, and went there and the whole goal. Now, see, I had the goal, too, once I came home. I've been looking for places. I'm moving to Arizona. So yeah. I'm moving back to that area where I've already started creating this life. And I have a couple of the residents that are cognitive that we've kept in touch. I've kept in touch with some of the caregivers. Um I miss, I miss the place. I love everyone. I miss the cooks, let me tell you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this has been my miracle, my mission, and my part was I'm going to do this, Hal's part. He did his part. And uh, it is. together. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
That's absolutely amazing. This might be a question for all three of you. Uh, Melissa, yours might be more the experience for the other two. Um, maybe you'll add some contrast to it. But basically, you know, we've got these multi-modalities. Eric, you're an absolute expert in, in using all of the different things that can really help people. And I asked you this on the podcast you and I did together. And again, all of you can answer this question. But do you think that food... If you, if you could choose one thing, like if, if she's not going to do a cold bath, <laughs> a cold immersion, um, or, you know, a sauna, red light, whatever, all these amazing things. Do you think that food is the biggest thing for most people in most situations? It's an awesome question, Casey, but it's really difficult to answer because I, a lot of people will listen to it and they say, okay, that's the one thing I'm going to do. And I want the takeaway to be, it's never just about one thing. But if we're talking holes in the boat, reality is some are probably bigger than others. It's just a question of what's the relative size for you. And given that Alzheimer's disease is nicknamed diabetes of the brain or type 3 diabetes for a reason, and that that is the most common dementing illness, I would say, yeah, diet and especially the standard American diet is probably the most important thing that the majority of people could deal with. But keep in mind that I've also done blood work on many, many hundreds of people, and I've seen so many that have severe impairment, but when you look at their metabolic health, they're knocking it out of the ballpark. They've got other issues that are their bigger thing. So I, I just... It's going to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I think that's that's what I'd say about it, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to say it's... If you get the food right, it sets you up for the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Like if you're eating well is a conscious choice of I want to improve my health. And it's it's more than anything else, the daily tasks that you're going to do for the rest of your life. So it's not only is it good, like Eric's saying, for your body and your metabolic health and everything, but it's... Um, it it's sort of sets the parameter, gets you into a sort of self-discipline mindset that, okay, I fixed the food. Now what's the next step? And it'll, it'll lead you down the road. Just like you heard Melissa, she got home and started investigating hyperbaric oxygen chambers. I mean, what are the chances she, she probably walked by that place a hundred times before she came to us and never even knew it was there. So, um, you know, once you're doing the food thing and you're accepting of that, you're going to be accepting for a whole bunch of other uh, therapies, modalities of things that can help you out. Well, I think that's one of the most thoughtful responses I've ever heard to that question. And I totally agree with you that it's um, if you're getting the food right, it says something about your intentionality and your mindset and how you approach all of this really matters. And I think Melissa is the perfect example of someone whose mindset was so solid right out of the gate. And we've just talked about all sorts of things related to that. So I, I'd love to hear Melissa's thoughts on the subject as well. But I brilliant comment, Hal. It is food. I find that when I've planned it out to the time i mean like today who doesn't want to have jalapeno poppers i mean i've i've got a a ribeye with my name on it for dinner you know i just i it i'm really good at planning and detail and that's what is required in my opinion for success the food start making starts making you feel better then you're willing to look around at 
the other things in, for instance, be more active. I have a lake that is about eight minutes walk from my apartment and I love to go there and walk around. I'll take my lunch. Um, there's something for me about eating outside and I practice, uh, even here in Washington in the winter, I am grounding, I am walking barefooted, but honestly, the uh, diet, I think, is what kicked it all off. And by continuing to do that, your body continues to feel better. You're using fats for energy as opposed to carbohydrates. Uh, you get away with, away from the inflammatory foods. Um, it, for me, it was easy. Uh, just making the commitment and jumping in. That, that was it. No other option. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed putting everything together. Again, I know it's very lengthy, but I thought it was really important to get all those nuanced voices. So many great episodes we had to keep out of this one. And I thank all of our guests for coming on. We love all of you and just so excited for this next year. Oh, just laughing to myself. Here's the, the lineup of a few of the guests we have coming on um, in early of 2024. So this is just a few of the names. Sally Norton is going to be making another appearance. Uh, we are hosting Maria um, Emmerich, it was an absolute OG in this space. We interviewed Craig this last year, her husband. Uh, Dave Champion is coming back on the show. He was awesome to talk to. We are interviewing none other than Dr. Georgia Ede, who is amazing. Lily Nichols is coming on. One of my all-time favorite people ever, Dr. Ben Bickman, is booked in to come back on the show. We haven't talked to him in over three years now. So we have a lot of amazing guests to come, um, and we have no son, no intent of slowing down or stopping anytime soon. Just I've, I've loved the process of making the podcast so glad we've had another really successful year regardless of whatever the downloads say or don't say i just i love doing this i love sharing this i hope you enjoy it like i said and i'm so grateful for all of our guests and all the amazing things that they have taught us over the years as always um we don't ask for any monetization on our podcast the best way to help support us if you enjoy this show is to make sure you go to apple Podcasts. that is the best platform to leave a review it gets out to the most people and it's the best way to share our um, our podcast around. And also, like we mentioned in the introduction, we always offer a complimentary 30-minute um, consultation. If you want to chat with us about the carnivore diet or anything else related to health and fitness, you can just go to our website, which is myboundlessbody.com. And cheers to an amazing 2024. Thanks for listening to Boundless Body Radio.